Welcome to episode 62 of the MJ Cast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. And today we're going to be talking with Jamin, who has returned to the show. We have Charles Thompson and Angela Candy, who will be sharing their fan stories and things that they love. Yes, Charlie does love MJ stuff. And we've got a lot of news to get through, including... Stranger Things Season 2 trailer, we've got Thriller 3D news, we've got the Michael Jackson's Halloween animated TV special, Quincy Jones' music royalty suit and settlement, Frank Cassio auction, we've got Cassio case updates, we've got so much. So stay tuned, hear it all, and here we go. The following is a presentation from the MJ cast. The internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Longhand. Okay. Well, tell so me they, when you f- finish doing that, that ruckus. That, I, I was going to do this all the way through the show. I thought it would make me sound sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> You're fired. He's fired. Yeah. <laughs> Just advertising oh sounds to it as well. <laughs> Don't give Jamin a heart attack. He's already probably having one. <laughs> All right, are you done, Charles? For now. <laughs> can you warn me before you make noise, like, so I can edit it? Yeah. Yeah, do you know how to mute, Charles? Honestly, do you know how? Yeah, there's a, there's a, a button here that says mute on it, I think. Can you do that all the time except when you're talking? What? That's what most, pod- <laughs> that's what most podcasters do, Q. They leave their mic on mute until yeah, they want to you- talk. But you always yell at us when we do do that. You hate it when we do that. Well, let's try it with Charles only. I'm going to do it. <laughs> He'll forget. He'll forget and then be talking for five minutes and then go, oh, I've just had my thing on mute and I've forgotten everything I say. Was that an English accent? Cute. It was a very bad one. I thought I'd start trying halfway through. Was that a Dick through. Van Dyke accent? No, it wasn't Cockney. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm ready to start. Let's go. Okay. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 62 of the MJ Cast. Today I'm joined by returning Jamin and also we have everyone's favorite co-host Charles Thompson and a special co-host today, uh, Miss Angela Candy. Is that even the right pronunciation? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Great. Hello everyone. Hi, Q. How are you? Hi. Welcome. Jamin's back. I know. It's so good to be back. I've, uh, I'm really happy to be here. We've got a great show planned. It's been, a, it's been great being able to have some time off to learn how to be a new dad. But I think I've kind of got that under control now. We're doing okay. And uh, yeah, it is good to be back. So, of course, Jamin has been on paternity leave, I guess. Yeah, I had to put in an application form and wait for you to approve <laughs> it. And oh, my God. 
not quite. So I, I proved it pretty quick. <laughs> um, Your paternity leave pay is pretty crap, though. Yeah, it's terrible. This job pays crap, but um, it really does. <laughs> so yeah, you've been busy changing nappies and doing all of the daddy stuff and helping out your beautiful wife. So congratulations again, and it's great to have you back. And we, of course, all want to send a massive, massive thank you to Jason Garcia. Thank you, Jason. He's awesome. We couldn't have been, we couldn't have continued the MJ cast without him. Actually, like his technical expertise really came in handy. The, the only problem is that he's now on paternity leave. <laughs> having he a, is. Uh, that's right. He's just yeah. become a dad like last week. And I can't help him with his show because I can't speak Spanish. I feel really bad. But luckily, he's trained the girls up to do a great job with that. But congratulations, Jason, on becoming a dad yourself. Uh, that is really exciting news and you're going to be an awesome father. And I've had a great time co-hosting with Jason and he's done um, an amazing job doing the editing and putting the shows together. He's a quick fire editor. He gets it in there and chop, 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 gets it all done really quick and does all lots of sound effects and was quite happy to accommodate all of my crazy requests for audio and inserting clips and things like that. So it's been a pleasure and we look forward to having Jason back on the show in the future. Uh, and thank you to Ale and Sandra for over at the MJ Cast and Espanol team for helping and doing so much for while Jason is otherwise occupied with his new little baby girl as well. Yes. So, and Charles and Angela, you guys have been busy. You've been doing some traveling. You guys have had a holiday in the last couple of months. Or not. I'm so sorry. Am I allowed to come off with mute now? Who forgot to unmute their mic? I didn't forget. I was waiting <clears throat> for permission from All right, Jamie. Charles. Permission. How was your recent holiday? It was very, very lovely. Uh, and Angela you, and I went to California. And um, you didn't drive off a cliff like Angela thought you would. You did drive into a bin as I did drive into a bin. Car. Yeah, it was literally in the car rental lot. Uh, I got into the car, and within about 40 seconds, I crashed into a bin. But other than that, um, I only there was, there was also that moment four times. There was also that moment where I almost drove into a tree to avoid the snake. Yeah, that was at Neverland. Yeah, yeah. there was a giant, a giant snake, which was so long, it stretched the whole width of the road. And um, Angela... Oh had a like a, a, a wig out and um, tried to swerve around it and I almost had a heart attack. Um, and I then, think... you know, in Santa Maria, I, I almost crashed into someone. Um, so, you know, we, it was fairly successful. Yeah, wow. Bonnie and Clyde escaping everything and swerving and, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Angela, welcome to the show. Your first time, isn't it? Thank you. Yes. I think it's my second, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, I haven't done right. one with you two. Yeah, it's not a live one with us. You no. did incredible contributions to the World Music Awards episode. That's the one. That was a great show, the 10th anniversary of the World Music Awards. So welcome. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, thanks for looking after Charles on the holiday. That's all right. Thank you for having me on. Oh, can't wait to hear some of your stories. Speaking of, I guess you 
got a few little Jackson stories from the recent trip, don't you? It wasn't a Jackson's holiday, but there were a few little moments. Do you want to share some of those? Uh, Sure. Which one should we start with, Charlie? I don't even remember what we did in what order, to be honest. What was the first thing we did? Uh, Oh, it's probably the courthouse at Santa Maria, right? Yeah, it would have been that. Yeah, so we went to um, Santa Maria. Uh, we visited the courthouse where Michael's trial was held and actually went inside and sat in the courtroom where Michael's trial was held. It was um, really small. Like, I, I didn't expect it to be so small. Um, and, you know, on TV, it just looked a lot bigger. We were actually doubtful that it was the right one at, at first. Yeah, it, what was amazing was that the courthouse is is um, is just in the middle of like a residential street, like across the road from it. There's people's houses, and Whoa. I remember watching the TV and seeing all the media camped outside the courthouse, and standing there in the street looking at it, it was really difficult to work out where they all actually were. Um, it looked much bigger on TV. Um, we uh, and the courtroom itself. Angela thought the courtroom was small, but it is, certainly was bigger than most British courtrooms that I uh, go to for work. It was about a hundred seats for spectators, which is, you know, like five times more than you get in most British courts. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a strange experience. <clears throat> it didn't. It didn't look how I expected it to. The uh, the courtroom. I don't know what you thought, Angela. Um, no, it just, I don't know, it was a really surreal, weird feeling of like, wow, all that happened over here, and it just seemed so quiet, and so, I mean, there was, there were like, uh, you know, court proceedings going on whilst we were in there, um, but yeah, I don't know, it just, it just seemed like a strange atmosphere. When we kind of came out as well, there were little pebbles on the floor which had messages from fans, which was nice. Oh, wow. Yeah, fans will cool. graffiti on every rock they can. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, we, what, what uh, was we... your what was your main purpose for going to the to the courthouse? Why did you want to go to that location? Um, for me, it was just a curiosity. Really, we we had devised this trip where we were going to be traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles down the coast, um, and Santa Maria was en route. We've been to Los Angeles a couple of times before, but we never had been to Santa Maria because it was just too much of an arsehole to drive there from Los Angeles. It's a really long way and it's, you know, you just couldn't be bothered. So, but because it was on the route, uh, we decided to stop in Santa Maria because it seemed like the perfect opportunity to do it. And while we were there, it, it just made sense to visit the courthouse. It, um, the same reason we went to Neverland. Similarly, we've uh, we've been to Los Angeles a couple of times, never been to Neverland because we didn't fancy the five-hour <clears throat> round trip on, you know, on a bus or however we would have to get there. But we hired a car this time and it was on the route, so we uh, we went and checked it out. We actually did the drive from the courthouse to Neverland, which presumably would have been the route that Michael would have been taking daily during the trial. Mm. And what was it like being at Neverland at the gates? Pretty boring. <coughs> um, Pretty boring. <laughs> Typical boring Charles answer me. right there. <laughs> so Charles, I wouldn't. I I wouldn't get out of the car. Because of the uh, snake, so I had to get Charlie to check that there was no snakes around. I would have been the same as you. 
I would have done exactly oh. the same. Yeah. But no, it was it was beautiful. Uh, Charlie didn't seem too moved by it, but <laughs> but it was great. I I loved it. Took loads of pictures. Yeah, it was nice to see it. But you know, once you get there, it's a gate, right? So and then you can't see anything. All of Michael's property, the house and the fairground and everything, it's like way over the hills. So yeah. all you can see when you get there is the guard hut and a little road that goes around a corner of a hill. So, mm. it, you know, once you've been there for two minutes, you've seen everything you're going to see. And it sounds yeah, like you know, the gu- whoever's of, in that guard hut has like the best job in the world. Well, interestingly, there were people coming and going while we were there. There was somebody who came in a pickup truck and they waved at us like they knew us. I don't know who they were. Um, <laughs> and then there was this crazy... Uh, old man who came up with a younger man in a car and he was filming us out of the car window (laughs) yeah i don't know what that was all about i said to angela we're probably going to be on some sort of wacky fans tv show or something (laughs) you know (laughs) hopefully not yeah it's kind of interesting you know people have graffitied all over the wall and the gate and everywhere and all over the lanterns they've painted messages i have to say I'm yeah. not impressed with people that have done that. I'm sorry. Like, I, I, why would you graffiti? Like, that is, to me, graffiti is a disrespectful thing. I just can't condone that. I don't know. It wasn't, I don't remember it being like that when I was there. Maybe a little bit, but apparently, like, every square inch now has just got graffiti oh, it's over covered. it. Yeah, it's absolutely covered. It's the same when you go to Abbey Road in um, London. It's just all over the, you know, pavement and and concrete, you know, structures around it. It's just graffiti everywhere. What Uh, is the deal with that? Why do people think that's a nice thing to do? Can someone explain it to me? (laughs) No, I have no idea. I mean, it's not attractive, really. You know, it's all kind of different pens and paints and stuff. There's no cohesion to it. It's just sort of. Yeah, it's not. It's definitely not local to Michael. It's it's. You go to the Great Wall in China, and it's the same. It's it's in any historical location. People just like to. I don't know. They probably do it and then take a photo and send it to their girlfriend or boyfriend and say, "Look, I've been here." It's just silly and disrespectful. Absolutely. It probably wasn't like that queue when you went there because um, you know Michael still sort of owned it and was alive then. So, what year did you go, Q? Uh, I think it was 2007 that I went. Was it, was Michael there in 2007? He wasn't living there, but the ranch was more complete. The The amusement park was still there. Oh, I see. Right. All the okay. rides were still there when I went there. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's true. It wouldn't have been graffitied because he was still we technically owned it. owned it in theory. So, okay, yeah, that, that explains it. Um, so you went to Neverland and then did other stuff too that were Michael related. What did you get up to? <laughs> well, we um, we met uh, J. Randy Tarabarelli for dinner. Uh, we met Tom Mesereau a couple of times. Uh, we met up with uh, Scott Ross. What else did we do? Oh, we went to Forest Lawn and we went inside Holly Terrace and we saw Michael's crypt. Okay, now, now this is a story. story. You've got yeah. to tell. This is See, a great I, story. I wasn't How did that sure happen? Whether we could talk about this, <laughs> you're talking about it. <laughs> it's happening. Well, you know, I mean, it's, you're not the only fans now. that, yeah, yeah, and you're not the only fans that have done this. So, 
Yeah, I should point out we didn't like pick the lock or anything. Um, <laughs> so we we just had gone around the back of the building to because you can get closer to where Michael is at the back of the building than at the front door where everybody usually goes. And so uh, Greg was with us, Greg Spinks, who's been on the show before, and, and he took us around there to show us. And um, we had just decided to go and see Liz Taylor because she's in the next building. Uh, I think it's called the Great Mausoleum. And as we were rounding the corner, we see a maintenance man carrying a ladder get out of his truck, uh, pick the ladder up and walk into Holly Terrace through the back door. Um, and as the door swung closed behind him, it didn't lock. It bounced back open and then closed again. And I thought, wow, that door is is not locked. So um, I just kind of made eyes at Greg and Angela, like, shall Charlie we? had the cheekiest smirk on his face, like, <laughs> we're going to do this. I mean, Greg just looked so scared. We were scared. We, we were following Charlie and our hearts were beating, <laughs> thinking, oh, we're going to get deported after this or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we just went in and we were sort of tiptoeing around and eventually we found our way upstairs and rounded a corner and there was Michael's crypt, I guess you would call it. The uh, It's like a turret attached to the building. He's at the end of a corridor. You can't go down the corridor. There's a metal chain closing it off from uh, public access. But you can, you can get probably 15 meters away. And he's uh, in a big white tomb under three giant stained glass windows. And it's just incredibly spectacular and um, beautiful. And uh, we just stood for a while. The three of us just stood, took our hats off, said hello, and then um, left again, didn't take any pictures or anything. It was kind of sad because you can see outside the building that a lot of fans drop stuff off, flowers and things, mm. and they don't appear to be taking that inside and putting oh, it with them. I've heard they do quite often. I've heard other there stories was, where there is generally a, a collection of stuff inside as well. Well, maybe they do when they get a lot of it or so. I don't know. But yeah, when we were pe- periodically these, maybe. Um, in Forest Lawn, where next to the graves, they have uh, these little, they look like sort of metal goblets, that, and they're supposed to be flower holders. And um, Michael has two giant flower holders next to his uh, tomb, and there was nothing in either of them. Um, there was maybe five little things down at the bottom of the tomb, but nothing else. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it, we didn't go there with the intention of uh, sneaking in. But, you know, an, oppor- an opportunity presented itself and um, we seized the moment. How was it outside? Like, were there a lot of other fans visiting? I think there was... There was just one person there, I think. Um, yeah. But there were a lot of things that were left. Um, yeah, we took. We went to take flowers. We didn't. We didn't go to to break in. <laughs> we just, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, every time we're in LA, we go to Forest Lawn and we we leave some sunflowers, you know. But um, when we got there, it just you, you know just was perfect timing. We walked past the door and it was open, and so we went in. What's the um for maybe fans that 
don't know. What's the significance of sunflowers? I remember <clears throat> after Michael passed away, Lisa Marie put up a little blog on um, MySpace and she said something like that uh, sunflowers was his favourite flower, that he used to call them the happy flower and that she used to put them um, around the house as much as she could. Um, so I think it's just something that's stuck. Although I, I mean, a lot of fans do take sunflowers, but, you know, obviously he gets, he gets uh, I think, there's, is there a rose thing as well that fans do every year? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's uh, that's what I've heard about it. Cool. Thanks for that. And then you recently also went to a pretty awesome concert as well, featuring other members of the Jackson family. Yeah. So uh, the Jacksons are currently on their 50th anniversary tour, uh, where all the dates so far have been in Canada and England and Scotland, I think, and Wales. So Canada and the UK. And Angela and I were at the Greenwich London show on the 6th of July. Not just us, uh, Sam Habib was there, uh, Greg Spinks was there, and a, a bunch of our other fan friends were there. I was suffering quite badly at the time with what turned out to be a kidney stone. So uh, I was kind of not in the mood for this gig by the time it rolled around. But although it sounds like a bullshitty sort of cliche, <laughs> And it was right after your giant Twitter war with Sam as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which lasted yeah. like two um, days. <laughs> well, you know, Sam and I, the thing with Sam and I is we've, we have a relationship where we can tear strips off of each other. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you know, we're, we're giving each other a hug and saying, I love you. So... It's, you know, a, so it's like a schoolyard where you go, I'm never talking to you again. I'm never yeah, talking yeah, yeah. to you again. I'm never coming to your house ever again. <laughs> and and then you think that's, oh, wow, that little kid's never seeing that friend again. And then, yeah, two days later, they're having lunch together. It's so cute, yeah, it's guys. Not, not even two days later. It's like two minutes. But, but what makes me laugh is that he has all these crazy followers who I call, what do I call them? The fuckwits. Um, oh so, my God. <laughs> so and they they always get involved like yeah stick it to charles fuck charles and they think <laughs> it's like a real thing and then you know like so literally that day all his followers have been slagging me off and then me and him were like together that evening hugging and, and having a great time at a jackson's concert so you know that's why i call them the fuckwits but i was kind of ill as I say, it turned out to be a kidney stone. All I knew at the time was I was suffering chronic abdominal pain. But for the duration of the Jacksons set, it was like it all just melted away. They were just fantastic. Pretty much the standard set list, they've, they've adapted it a bit. Push Me Away is gone. But the big news is that they, uh, they perform State of Shock, which is the first time I think they've ever performed it on a tour. And it, they did that as the very final track after Shake Your Body. Mm. And the whole place went nuts. Yeah, the gig was absolutely fantastic. Was there another song that they did towards the end that... No, it wasn't. It, was. <laughs> it was State absolutely... of Shock, amazing. Amazing. Mm. And um, they they were great on that night because I watched the... 
I watched the Glastonbury show from like a week before or whatever, and there was some clear. It was amazing. I loved watching it, but there definitely were some clear issues with um, the sound, and I don't know how well yeah. they were mic'd up or whatever. But um, how was it all on that night? Everything sounded great. Yeah, everything sounded yeah. fine. I watched the Glasto set, and it was a real shame. You know, there were points where they were singing and you couldn't hear them. Jermaine kept sort of signaling to the side of the stage like he couldn't hear in his uh, earpiece. It, it was a bit of a mess, that Glastonbury show. I mean, they they, they soldiered on. And, um, I mean, gone too soon at Glastonbury was just phenomenal. But mm. um, the, the London show was just fantastic. It really, really was great. Um, the band is exceptional. Uh, the only thing I could have done with is a bit more noise. It was, um, to, I don't know, maybe I'm losing my hearing or something, but I just think all concerts are too quiet now. But um, yeah, it was great. And the crowd, I've got to say as well, one thing that really made it was the crowd were so into it. Um, and, you know, by the end of, when they went off stage after States of Shock, um, how long was it? Oh, it was yeah. like more than five minutes. The crowd was just screaming and chanting more, 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 stomping they their feet, clapping their hands. They refused to leave. The the festival organizers came in and had to start removing people and say, no, you need to leave now. The crowd was going nuts. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. That is I th- so I think cool. that's great for them to see as well, that they have such a demand. And they were fantastic. I think that's something that fans need to remember is that, like, when these guys perform, the quality is still there. The talent is still mm. there. Their Motown schooling is still coming into play. The amazing hits they have are still hits. They're still good. And these guys still just, like, wipe the floor with some other live acts. And they they are a genuine piece of music history that is still worth seeing 50, yeah. 50 years on. Yeah, I think people forget as well just how fantastic the back catalogue is. Just for the Jacksons, you know, people remember Michael's stuff, but, you know, aside from, like, Blame It on the Boogie and a, a couple of others, they just forget. And they really do have some heavy hitters for songs. And the other thing is, as well, they managed to fill out an hour and a half set, and that's even though they've shortened, like, five of their biggest hits into a medley. So the, some of the biggest hits, I Want You Back, ABC, yeah. uh, The Love You Save, I'll Be There, Dancing Machine, Never Can Say Goodbye. These songs are all shortened into a, a little medley. You know, they if they were to perform those songs all the way through, then this show would be like two hours long. They also cut, they have to cut verses out of some of their other songs. You only get a verse and chorus of Heartbreak Hotel before they start moving into the guitar solo. So, oh, we also got Tito's solo set. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No, you know what? The first song was, uh, what did he do? Uh, was he it did Get It, Baby? something called When the Magic Happens or something. No, uh, what was the first one That's his one new he did? single, yeah. That, that was that. Yeah, it was When the Magic Happens. And then he moved into Get It, Baby, which was much better. Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know, like the, the, if you looked around, the atmosphere just changed with each song. Get it, baby, everyone's on their feet dancing. The other song, it just sort of went really quiet. Yeah. Yeah, 
it went flat. But that's always, you know, it's the same with anyone. I mean, if you go and see, um, I don't know, who would be like a living legend now? If you go and see Barry Manilow or anyone and then he says, and, and now I'm going to do some songs off the new album, everyone goes, oh, for fuck's sake. You know, <laughs> I guess it's because like, they haven't time. had a... I guess it's because they haven't had a chance to learn the songs. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the same with any gig, you know. It's like yeah. Even Prince, to an extent. You know, when I was seeing Prince a lot in 2014, 15, whenever he would say, and now we're going to play Plectrum Electrum, I'd go, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, just not, you're not there for that. So it's just kind of natural. I thought they were very kind to him at Glastow, actually. They seemed to be loving it at Glastonbury when he did yeah. his solo set. It is incredible that they were, they, I mean, uh, they, they pulled such a massive crowd, and I, I definitely think they deserve to have, but at the same time that they were playing, I'm pretty sure the Foo Fighters were playing. And it's like, that's a, you know, they're a contemporary current act that are a lot younger and probably appeal a little bit more to the demographics going to Glastonbury, but the Jacksons were still able to get a crowd of monumental size at their stage, which is pretty cool. And a a very touching moment as well, I must say, at both London and Glastonbury was when Jermaine dedicated Gone Too Soon to the victims of the Grenfell Tower fire in Mm. London. That's been a real, real bad um, situation in the UK. It's causing so much upset and, um, it was really, it was really good of them to do that, and uh, it went down very well. Yeah, it's very classy. Yeah, they are Hopefully, classy. we have more concerts uh, coming this year and and next year from them because I really want to see them live. Well, you know, at the end of the uh, concert, they had uh, something come up on the screen saying "new music coming soon," so we're hoping so. Yeah, they've been talking about doing a new album for quite a while. <laughs> I have no doubt that they do have some tracks ready to go and um, it'll just be about recording them and releasing it. They seem to, One thing about the Jacksons is um, they seem to have a little bit of trouble actually getting music out worldwide on proper releases. Like 3T had trouble with that with their Chapter 3 album. Tito seems to be having a little trouble with that with his Tito Time album. I don't know why they can't secure worldwide releases for their music that are, you know, that are smooth. Well, I think it's just because of the limited commercial potential, you know, which is not to say that it's going to bomb, but in this age, in terms of physical releases, they just don't make any money. You know, it's, it, you have to be like Adele to, to make money out of a physical release. So record companies are only really prepared to sign you up if they think you're going to shift a million or whatever. Mm. Yeah, is Tito going to sell a million? I don't know. I doubt it. I mean, I'd love it if he did, particularly with his bluesy stuff, but seems unlikely. Yeah, but you know, they could just go digital. Yeah, uh, you know, why why can't they just put it on iTunes? That seems like a fairly simple thing mm. to do. Well, that's the problem. That's what I'm saying. It's their stuff's on iTunes in particular countries, but like not the US or not Australia, and it's just oh. odd to me why they can't secure. I thought you that. could like. Can't you do that yourself? I thought you could actually do that yourself. Well, I think that's what Janet did with her new album, which I know you love. Um, she <laughs> she she put that out everywhere, and that's a self. She you know she's self funding that. That's yeah. Anyway, all good. It'll come and it'll be good. I hope. 
Over the years, Michael Jackson has thrilled us with his music, his singing, his dancing. Now he's stirring our senses like never before with two dangerously seductive scents. Mystique de Michael Jackson for women. Legion de Michael Jackson for men. Too dangerous to be sold in any store. These exclusive scents are available for the very first time, only through this special offer, and for a limited time only. And while these scents were meant to be worn, their bottles were designed to be saved and collected. Each features a fantastic holographic image of Michael's face that seems to turn and smile right at you. Remember, this is a special limited offer, so please reserve your order now for yourself as a very special gift for any Michael Jackson fan and for the collector's value of the truly unique bottles themselves. Call the number on your screen. Have your Visa or MasterCard ready and call now. Or send check or money order for $29.95 plus $4.50 shipping and handling to this address. Order for yourself or for a friend. Call now. Let Michael Jackson stir your senses like never before with Mystique de Michael Jackson for women, Legend de Michael Jackson for men, too dangerously seductive scents, too dangerous to be sold in any store. Remember, this is a special limited offer, available for a limited time only. Call the number on your screen. Call now. Hi, this is Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffitt, drummer for Michael Jackson and the Jacksons, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Amazing stories, guys. Thank you so much for sharing. That's all right. And, of course, <laughs> t- today's main discussion topic is going to be Angela's fan story and... Charles fan story and favorite things that Charles actually likes. <laughs> oh, gosh. This, uh, you know, I feel like I get a bad rap. Oh, by the way, by Uh-oh. the way, apparently somebody said on an episode of the MJ cast recently <laughs> that I am a fan of searching for Neverland. Who the fuck I, said that? I don't think that's what was said. <laughs> I think it was said that you liked it didn't yeah you liked it that you didn't hate it yeah i think what i said was it wasn't as shit as i expected it to be and somehow this morphed in a sort of a chinese whispers scenario into somebody saying that i liked it okay i said that i said that i'll put my hand up but charles i have messages here from you after that show came out where you're praising it like you're you're like well you, yeah, you're saying probably, you're saying that within, you thought that yeah. navi did a really good job and that oh, you enjoyed no, you watching it i'm just looking for my messages hang on i'm i'm just searching i don't know how to search are, are you and angela friends with navi just wanted to ask because you're both in the uk no. No, i've no. met him but no i'm not friends with him I think every person that's a yeah. fan in the UK has met him, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty well, do you much, wanna, yeah. I, I'll tell you a story about Navi, right? You tell us a story while Jamin finds the I'm messages. finding these incriminating we messages. Were, um, we were invited to meet Jermaine in – when did his book come out? Was it 2011? Anyway, I don't remember. But Jermaine brought a book out and um, Angela and I were, meet, were invited to meet him ahead of his uh, book signing we went upstairs into a little private room and, and met him and he signed Angela's victory album and we had a chat. And, um, anyway, we were, we were hanging around outside the Waterstones bookstore in London and Navi was there, of course, 
dressed up in complete Michael Jackson regalia from head to toe because, of course, the natural thing to do is to follow people around dressed as their dead brother. And um, <laughs> that's a completely appropriate thing to do. And uh, he just kept walking up and down the street. And it was so obvious that he was really, really desperate for somebody to stop him and ask him for a photograph. It was like there's no need for him to just keep pacing up and down the road. And anyway, then eventually somebody did stop him and ask him for a photograph. And he was like, oh, fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, oh, I don't have time for this. Anyway, but it, it, I just found it really funny. It was <laughs> just you know, obviously so desperate for somebody to ask him for a picture. It was really funny. Yay. Oh, God. Um, Angela, I got Jermaine to sign my victory album too. Did you? He yes. told me a little story about it, actually. I'm going to see if I can pull out a victory album. Yeah. And, um, you know the inlay where you've got all the brothers uh, lined up next to each other? Yeah. I can't find a copy of it, so I don't know. But anyway, he was saying that he um, he was insisting on the set that he wanted to be, like, to the right on the end. So he wanted to be first. And uh, they let him in the end. And then when they printed it, they flipped the picture so he was last. But oh, I can't, remember, really? I can't find the, the album to see if that's the case. I've got to say, I remember him telling us that story, and I totally did not understand that story at all. And he must have told us that story about three times. That's why I wanted to get the album to to see if that's what he meant. (laughs) I was just like, what is he talking? I I did not understand that story whatsoever. I thought, why do you want to be first? What does that matter? It just seemed like a really peculiar... Anyway, it made sense to Jermaine. And it was 2011 was the book release because I'm sitting in my library and I just turned to my left and I've got the book here that Jermaine also Uh, autographed for me. And he was really, he was like, wow, you, you read my book. And I was like, yeah, he was really seemed to be shocked that I had a copy of his book and had read it and really enjoyed it. Where did you meet Jermaine? I met um, the four brothers uh, on their unity tour uh, as they were departing Perth and heading to the East Coast for the East Coast shows. I wasn't working at the time. I wasn't at work, and so it wasn't a work thing, breaking any rules. Um, (laughs) But I knew that they were flying out that next day for the East Coast, so I was very lucky, and I came prepared, and, yeah, got some autographs, which was very exciting. And they were absolutely gentlemen. Did you go to their gig? In Perth, yeah, for the Unity concert. Oh, what did you think? Loved it. Loved yeah. it. Took a nephew. He really loved it. Um, and the seats I had were not the best, but the show was phenomenal. And I would go and see the Jacksons again in a heartbeat. They really do keep the energy high throughout the entire show. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It was great. How are you going I with think, the evidence there, Jamin? Yeah, I think Jamin's I, uh, still looking for some phantom messages where I no, said I love Navi. <laughs> I cannot find them, but I have a clear yeah. memory of Charlie, you telling a clear me. Clear memory. Yeah. No, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and I, I know this say, is going to be a hard sell, but I wouldn't Angela. have come out and said on that show that you, you liked it unless I remembered. And I don't know, like I don't have the yeah, messages, but... 
Was it was it in like our it. conversation at some point? You like we we actually had a phone call where we were talking about it maybe, and you you were I I swear to God you were not hating on it. You were saying that you you I, kind yeah, of enjoyed think, watching it, and I think what I said was it was um, in terms of the narrative position that it took. I liked it. You know, it it kind of didn't shy away from a lot of the stuff that was going on um, in at that point in Michael's life. But crucially, it was a, a bit of a disaster in the sense that they cast somebody who neither looked like Michael Jackson nor sounded like Michael Jackson nor could act nor could even do an American accent or in dance. a central role. Or dance or anything. I mean, or sing. You know, this was lunacy. It was lunacy. I mean, why would you cast a non-actor as the lead role in a, a film? It's just dumb. And um, his accent was like one minute he was British, the next minute he was kind of American, and then he'd be doing some sort of like crazy sort of quasi-patois or something. I mean, it was just all over the place. And um, there were also, there, I remember there was one scene, and I don't know what the scene was now, but I really clearly remember that he obviously forgot his line halfway through, and there was a big pause in the middle, and then he said the second half of the line, and you're just going, what you like? How much of a budget were you filming this on that you couldn't reshoot that scene? He just, it was, oh, it was just crazy. He didn't look like Michael. The whole thing. And did you see that Wendy Williams bullshit when yes. he was on the show? Where she's going, I can't believe that you look so much like Michael. And you're going, what? Have you got, like, fucking cataracts? What's wrong with you? Yeah, but Wendy Williams doesn't look like Wendy Williams anymore much, does she? <laughs> so, folks, if you want to hear more about uh, our review of Searching for Neverland, there is actually a YouTube-exclusive episode that we recorded with Jenkins, host of the Moonwalk Talks podcast. Uh, one weekend we'd set to record and got stood up by two different guests who knew each other, but that's a whole other Oprah show and different story. So we ended up just talking about General Michael stuff and, yeah, we got in depth about our thoughts about the Searching for Neverland film and also just MJ film stuff in general and thriller 3D release. So that is a YouTube episode. It's uh, got a big, beautiful cover art with bonus on it. It's a bonus thing. So go find that on our YouTube channel and listen because it's actually a really great discussion, which I think we're going to hear a couple of clips from in one of our upcoming stories, which segue into the news because we've got a fair bit of news to get through. Some of it is great news, some of it not so great news. And then we've got Charles to explain all the complicated stuff that us laymen might not understand. So time for the news. And then after that is our discussion where Charles and Angela will share fan stories and Charles will actually admit to being a Michael Jackson fan and liking some stuff. <laughs> Isn't that correct, Charles? I feel like you give me a bum rap on this show. I mean, you know, okay, I don't like mimed performances or Invincible, but, you know, I like the rest of it. Yeah, we know. From we world. know that, but there's listeners out there and social media people that don't know that, so that's well, what we don't talk about. That's the thing. They, um, they're just cretins who are looking for 
looking for misery. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lay all that. I mean, I did do a whole show with Sam where I spoke some length about stuff I love about Michael. But anyway, that was you know. such a good show, by the way. I wasn't on that one, but I remember it was a great, great episode. So we're going to start and hear so many things that you love about the the new first new story. I'm sure, Charles. Um, <laughs> but we had an announcement that the estate were going to do an announcement. And then the announcement and didn't then, happen. And then, Jamin, you stayed up till the middle of the night or got up in the middle of the night to do a live tweet of this announcement. And what happened? It was ridiculous. I got up at like 2 a.m., um, half an hour before it was going to happen. And I'm like, live tweeting, what, what could this be? It's going to be awesome. What, what, you know, I always fall into that trap of thinking that the next thing's going to be good when we all know it's not going to be. And then the announcement didn't actually happen. It just never came. Like... 20 minutes passed, 40 minutes passed. They did another announcement saying that their announcement that they were going to announce has been delayed and they'll do another announcement another time. It was so confusing. And then I emailed the guy in charge of MJ Online team. His name is Jeff. And he and I was like, okay, like there's fans up at crazy hours all over the world right now waiting for this. Like, are you going to make us wait like three hours? How long do we have to wait here? And he was like, we'll let you know. That's all he said. <laughs> yeah, 24 hours later, they they did the announcement properly, but you couldn't stay up again. So no. we actually got Charles to do the live tweeting for this and it was hilarious and it was very funny. And um, they made the announcement that later in the year, uh, CBS will be – producing an hour-long Michael Jackson's Halloween TV special, which is an animated cartoon which will feature different versions of the songs or interpretations of the Thriller tracks or something. We don't know a lot about it yet, but it went down like a lead balloon. Charles, you live-tweeted it. Share your thoughts. Yeah, well, I did live-tweet it. Thank you for that, by the way. Oh, well, uh, it was, it happened to coincide with my being off work with a kidney stone. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. But, um, yeah, that was, um, it was, well, I'm sort of picturing that guy in the Simpsons, the comic book guy, just saying worst announcement ever. But, um, <laughs> it, this was the stupidest announcement I've ever seen. So they made this big fucking deal out of like, oh, you know, we, you know, put your helmets on and strap your seatbelts in because we're going to make an announcement. You're going to love this. <laughs> and then and then they keep everyone waiting for another day. And then when it eventually goes online, they make this announcement. It's like this pitiful piece of bullshit that any other estate would just do as a matter of course. This is the kind of thing the estate should be doing ancillary to its other big projects. The idea that this is the big project of this year is so ludicrous. I don't even I don't even know where to begin. This is this is bullshit. The idea that this is something that's even worth a giant announcement is lunacy. These people are incompetent. You know, uh, yeah, all right, you're doing a cartoon. I mean, honestly, who gives a fuck? Really? Who gives a fuck? Yeah, so it's probably going to be shit. Um, I shan't be staying up to watch it. 
you know, if somebody <laughs> sends me an illegal torrented copy or something, I might one day muster the sort of courage to subject myself to it. Uh, they've already released some statements saying that it will be, uh, it will include reimagination of Michael's songs or whoopee. So, um, you know, the lead character is being voiced by Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Uh, well, what can you say? Fuck you, Michael Jackson estate. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jamin, got some uh, details and thoughts? Yeah, look, um, I prior to this announcement actually happening, I did think that this could possibly be a good idea, This this idea of you know, fictional Michael Jackson stories coming out on film or TV, maybe featuring characters that he played in in music videos and stuff. But like all of these things, I can never really predict how I'm going to feel until it actually happens and I see some of the product and and then my gut reacts in a certain way. Just like Escape, before the Escape album came out, I thought I was really going to like um, hearing contemporized versions of of those songs. Then when it happened, my my entire being like rejected everything about those songs and I've I've never listened to them since and I don't want to. Same with this sort of thing. I, I was looking forward to it. And then as soon as I've seen the image um, of it with the little, you know, white dog with the Jerry Curl thing going on, it's just, I'm not excited. I'm not, I'm not hating on it at all, but I'm not excited for it. I'm just smack bang in the middle of like, this thing is going to happen and I'm just going to, whatever, it's going to happen and I don't even know if I'm going to watch it. I'm not, not that pumped. I was excited for a beautifully remastered version of uh you know his thriller short film in um you know widescreen high definition beautiful looking that's what i was excited for as a michael jackson fan because i love michael jackson i'm not really excited for um a cartoon about him so much but we will see yeah well, I, I everyone just, can resents I just his... clarify yes. my position right because i don't want to sound like negative Nigel all the time but so if the estate had unveiled a schedule of Thriller 35 celebrations right so like we're going to be touring the original film print and you can come and watch uh, the video and the making of Thriller in a cinema and you know we're going to uh, release a new documentary which is about Thriller and all this other stuff and we're also going to be putting out a cartoon, then, you know, fantastic. As I said, this is the sort of thing that an estate should be doing par for the course. This is this is nothing special. But to make the cartoon the announcement, which should be an ancillary thing that's going on in the background, like this is how we're going to celebrate Thriller, is we're going to release a cartoon that Michael's not in where all the music's reimagined. I mean, you know... If if this was part of a much bigger project, I really wouldn't give a fuck. But it's the fact that they turn this into the announcement, like this this is announcement worthy. I just thought was absolutely idiotic. Angela, what are your thoughts as a Michael Jackson fan on the CBS Michael Jackson's Halloween cartoon? I mean, I'm not excited about it. I found it a bit underwhelming um you know I kind of feel like everything since he's passed has been aimed at I'm not sure who they're catering for 
um, you know, like the Casio tracks, you've got the Save to the Rhythm hologram, this. It, it just doesn't feel like Michael. It doesn't feel authentically whatever we're given. I, you know, I would have really appreciated you know, ghosts being on DVD and Blu-ray for the first time or the making of Thriller on DVD and Blu-ray for the first time or a tour that we haven't had, you know, something that is, you know, his art that he actually put out at the time, just remastered and, but I don't know, I'm just not interested in this. Someone will be, I'm sure, but, you know, it's just not, I don't know. I don't get excited for this. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. Somebody will be interested. We're probably not the target audience. I think that you know, young children around the world, kids that probably would have liked, um, you know, Star Wars, the Clone Wars series. They, yeah. the Star Wars franchise, did a great job with taking their franchise to a much younger generation with their three D. Um, cartoon. I think that's what they're trying to go for. They're trying to take the franchise of Michael Jackson to a younger generation and get them excited about him, which I guess is is cool and everything because they want to build his brand, but it doesn't appeal to people like me who just love Michael's art itself. But, Jamin, with yeah. the terrific Star Wars, Clone Wars animation series analogy, that actually included things from Star Wars that were what people loved like it wasn't reinventing the wheel this is barely featuring michael like what the it we think it's a story of this guy and this girl and madcap adventures at this this place hotel sort of deal at halloween and then michael will make an appearance at the end of it in a dance routine as an animated form so michael's not even a main character of this whereas in the star wars thing the Star Wars characters were the main characters. Yeah, it was all Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. It was all Star Wars. It wasn't like, okay, now we're going to do a Star Wars animated series, but we're going to set it in like a Lego village with no one that you even know. Yeah, yeah. And that makes me wonder, like, why have they removed so much Michael Jackson from this quote-unquote Michael Jackson cartoon? Is it because the things that are happening in the, the Quincy Jones lawsuit? Like, because Thriller is so much Quincy, like, maybe they're not allowed to use lots of... I don't know. Who knows? Well, it's interesting that it comes after it comes while they're still awaiting a verdict in the IRS trial where they were claiming that Michael Jackson's image was of no value uh, because it had been so tainted by child abuse allegations. And I think they even called an expert witness to uh, testify about how they were a few years ago, they were thinking of creating a Michael Jackson cartoon, but they had to erase Michael Jackson from the cartoon because they thought that his brand was so sullied that people wouldn't want it associated with a children's cartoon. Um, so <clears throat> it makes me wonder if that, if they're making a point here or if they're trying to justify their own position in the IRS trial. There, that's right. I can't remember much details about it, but there was plans for some sort of thriller cartoon in the past after Michael was it after Michael had died or before where they really would have removed Michael from the whole thriller concept. Ridiculous. Oh, I, I wish I could find the conversation I had with someone about that in my text messages, mm. but that has been planned. And not that that may be this exact same project, but it certainly echoes of it. Yeah. And that is disturbing. And they have removed Michael 
from a lot of their Michael products. He's not even featured in the cover art as an original picture, I think, in any single release except for Off the Wall and Bad 25. He's not yeah. the he's not even featured in the artwork for the Cirque shows, their paintings. He's not featured he wasn't featured in the the Slave to the Rhythm performance. There was three songs that he wasn't featured. So they're removing Michael from his own art. Yeah, it's mm. odd. In in a way with the with the thriller cartoon concept, I'm kind of glad in a sense, like I I don't want to see fictional material with Michael Jackson in it. I'd be I'd be able to stomach fictional material with Michael's characters in them. So Daryl from the bad short film or, you know, any of the characters that he created. But actually making a fictional story with Michael as Michael Jackson doing stuff in it, I'm just not comfortable with that because I don't know like how how would we know what he would have wanted himself to be doing in those narratives? I'm not cool with that. But sure, if it's the thriller character that he created, that's different. I I think I'd be okay with that. Does that make sense? Yes. And that segues well into a thing that I spoke about actually about a week or two before this announcement even came out. When we were talking with Jenkins in that bonus YouTube episode, we're going to cross to a clip where I was actually, we were, we were all at that time hoping they were going to announce Thriller 3D and they didn't. And that was another thing that we were all expecting Thriller 3D because there had been talk about it coming out. And then the announcement was of this show and that was a huge disservice to their like sort of publicity is that they build something up and then they don't give people what they want or expect when we know that there is a thriller 3d thing happening. So in this discussion prior to this announcement, I actually spoke about what I would like to see. And I actually not predicted that this is what they were going to do because this isn't exactly what I want. I actually want animated Michael stuff about, Michael Jackson characters and storylines, not about kids in a hotel. So we're going to cross to a clip where I actually sort of predict, but not quite, and explain what I would like to see. Take it away. I'll Mm. tell you what I actually do want to see. I want to see fictional Michael Jackson stuff. Michael Jackson, for me, like in the 90s when I became a fan, he was like a superhero, True. Okay. Captain EO is brilliant. It's cheesy as now, but it was so cool. But that was fictional. I am quite happy to see, and, and, you know, sometimes you see like manga comics with Michael Jackson, like by amazing artists. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to see animated Michael in a cartoon, but he's like a, he's Michael Jackson, the performer and stuff, maybe even the dad but he's also a superhero. Give him some superpowers and stuff. Let him go do his cool magic shit everywhere. And, you know, he's got a, he's got a message. He's got like a, a cool story that he's out there doing good and inspiring people. I want to see like a cool cartoon or a cool comic book series or something. Dude, I'm That's- all for a Captain EO comic, uh, a Captain EO cartoon, or a Captain yeah. EO like CG, something yep. like like. Oh, dude, I'm all about that. I would love because I love those and like when those artists draw cartoon Michael. It's like super stylized. Yeah, but, you know, he's, he's already got the cool outfits. 
He can already do cool stuff. That's what I want to see. Give me a comic book. Give me an animated short. Give me like an other adventures of Captain EO. Or, you know, he was even in a Sega game where they filmed him. He was reading the script off like the the, the little screen in front of him. You could see his uh-huh. eyes like reading the script. But he was in that AS1 flight simulator game. He was like a commander, like training you how to fly because we were cadets in this game. And it was cool. It was great fun. Really? What, what game is this? It's called, it was a flight simulator. It maybe fit eight people, 10 people in this little like minivan sort of size thing. And the screen was in front of you and you each had like a joystick and controller. Sega made it. It was in like Sega world arcades and stuff. And it was called AS one. And there's very few videos of it on YouTube. And yeah, he's got like the sort of earth song hair, but he's in a cool white jacket. And you can see him, his eyes are like reading his lines off the screen in front. Um, and it's not terrifically acted, but man, that was awesome fun. And just, yeah. you know, put him, put him in like a space science fiction setting or a superhero thing. And I would love so much and pay to subscribe to that <laughs> or to, to collect the whole series of comic books or graphic I would novels. Too. That Think would like be a smooth awesome. criminal comic book, dude. It's like it's like it, it, it was the smooth criminal character doing yep. what he does as like through a series of comic books. Like I, I would pay for stuff like that. I mean, like because like smooth criminal that is a character. Thriller, the guy he's playing is a character. Even in yeah. bad, he's playing a character. Michael Jackson, as much as he is a real person, he also projected a character to the public. He played yeah. the part of Michael Jackson. Very so, true. Tell us some stories. This can be some cool original stories and it can be not negative and stuff because it's not a real person as much as it is a character. So, man, I would love that. So Thriller 3D is actually going to be happening. Um, It's going to be in cinemas, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm not sure about in cinemas, but it's it's going to be screened at the 2017 Venice Film Festival. There was uh, a photograph leaked online about, or it didn't really leak, but it just came out online about a week ago. Uh, it looked like it was some kind of press announcement or something where a couple of people are sitting on stage. Uh, behind them is a schedule of what's going to be or what is it, um, the Venice Film Festival. And on the screen, you can see a listing of Thriller 3D um, by John Landis. And then the making of Thriller is going to be screened as well as a special screening. It had the director's name next to that. I can't remember his name. But I'm, I'm actually really excited for this because there's a chance, there's a small chance here that, that not only will Thriller be remastered, but I can't, I can't imagine them showing a VHS quality 4x3 um, film at the Venice Film Festival. So maybe we're looking at um, the making of Thriller having been remastered as well. Who knows? Well, fingers crossed. I'm not going to get my hopes up, but fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> well, a few years ago, well, actually in 2009, I think in August of 2009 or around then, uh, just shortly after Michael died, John Landis was in London for uh, Fright Fest, which is a a horror movie festival and he held a secret midnight screening of the making of thriller uh, where he appeared on stage to introduce uh, the music video and, and the making of and 
word leaked into the fan community and Angela and I actually got down there. Uh, we met Mr. Landis and then we were there for the screening. Um, now, I don't remember it being VHS quality. I mean, it wasn't like HD, but it was a fair, you know, it was a fairly good quality print that they were showing there. We had to buy a ticket. What was that film we had to buy? T- anyway, it was, it was some, we had to buy a ticket for some other thing. And then what they did was they secretly tacked um, Thriller and the making of Thriller onto the front. And John Landis came on stage and, and gave a speech. And it's funny because just before, while we were, when I was live tweeting the uh, estate's announcement, um, just before they announced it, I said that my ideal thriller 35 celebration would be uh, a tarantino style tour of the thriller and making of thriller print uh, where john landis would take it around the world and, and do q and a's and introductions and then show you know the original documentary and the music video uh, on big screens so this is quite exciting this is what the estates announcement should have been yes. uh, rather than a silly yeah. cartoon I hope it doesn't just screen at Venice. I would love if it came to London, and if it comes I think to it London, will tour. I will be there. I yeah. think it will. I think it will be a wider release. I think this is like a premiere of Venice, and then hopefully they get the timing right, and in October it'll pop up around other screens. I think that we spoke about in a previous episode a summer release of Thriller 3D. I'm hoping that means that that is referring to the Venice premiere. Yep, hopefully. Charles, can you remember back, and Angela, can you remember back to that screening of Thriller? Do you remember it being presented in a 4x3 format or was there more information on the sides of the screen making it a widescreen presentation? I don't remember. I mean, I remember I tried to record a bit on my phone and I got told off. um, (laughs) No, I don't remember. Do you, Charlie? I honestly don't remember. Uh, my main recollection, let me tell you a brief story, right? We were in London. Michael's just died. He died maybe eight weeks, six weeks before we went up for this event. And all the shops in Leicester Square in London, which is like the tourist hub, are filled with Michael Jackson T-shirts. And Angela says to me, do you have a Michael Jackson T-shirt? I said, I've never owned one in my life. And she said, shall we get some? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So we um, we go into a shop and we buy these Michael Jackson T-shirts and then go into a public toilet and change. And then we go into the Empire Cinema in Leicester Square where the film was being shown. And to get into the cinema, you enter at ground level and then you get straight onto an escalator, uh, which takes you up about three stories, two or three stories to the cinema lobby. And as our heads popped above the top of the escalator, I said to Angela, that's John Landis in front of us. And uh, he was standing at the top of the escalator talking to someone. And as we continued to move up the escalator and our Michael Jackson T-shirts became visible, (laughs) he looked at them, his face fell open in horror, and then he literally sprinted across the length of the cinema lobby and hid in a VIP area so that but he didn't we chased have to talk him. to us. 
That's all good. <laughs> so, well, no, we didn't catch him then. He disappeared into the. <laughs> but on the way out, we bumped into him, and uh, and he was quite chatty when we bumped into him again. But um, yeah, it was quite funny. He obviously <laughs> just has no fucks to give when it comes to Michael Jackson's fans. He was just out of there straight away. He saw the t-shirts and he was gone. <laughs> well, if you if you didn't act like such crazies, maybe he wouldn't yeah. have run. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if we hadn't had those T-shirts on, then we probably would have been able to stand and have a, a chat with him, just the two of us. But in the end, we uh, we caught him on the way out, and he'd been sort of cornered by about ten other fans, and he was signing autographs. And uh, John is, I tell you what, if you could ever get him on the show, he's so funny and completely indiscreet. He has no pretensions whatsoever. If he thinks somebody is an asshole, he will tell you they're an asshole. I remember that in the lobby, he was, just as we walked up to him, he was going, Joe Jackson's a fucking pig. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm just yeah, looking he's, at the pictures. He's so indiscreet. He's great. He's really funny. So I hope he does tour this print personally. He doesn't seem to be doing much else these days. He's not in, directed anything for a while. So maybe um, maybe he'll, like Tarantino, he'll take the print around the world and he'll do Q&As and that kind of stuff. And if he does, that would be absolutely fantastic. I'm totally, I'm there. I'll be buying tickets. That is a, a project I can endorse fully. Are you guys excited about the Thriller 35 uh, 3D film concept at all? I, I mean, I really want to see it in the cinema. That'd be awesome to see it as in 3D. It's I agree. Experience. Yeah. I I tend to think that when something is not shot in 3D, and then they try and turn it into 3D, it usually ends up looking like a mess. So I would rather they just played it in HD than 3D. But you know, we'll see. Yeah, 100% with you, Charles. I'm, I'm not excited for the 3D aspect of it. I'm excited for the remastered aspect of it. <clears throat> I can't wait to check it out in a cinema. It's going to be a great experience. But I, at this stage, I'm kind of a little bit even more excited to watch that um, making of Thriller, um, if it's been improved in quality at all. But, um, it's been a long time since I've seen that VHS. It's oh. got to be, in my opinion, probably the best documentary on Michael Jackson, the making of Thriller, I reckon. Because it's on a sh- it's on a it's on a localized sort of little topic. It's not on his whole life, and then misses heaps of bits of it. It's just on this one topic, and it goes into a lot of depth on it. And there's some great, great footage of Michael rehearsing that 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 video. It's very cool. And he looks beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and he seems so happy. It's like a a window on a moment in Michael's career where everything was just going beautifully and it's really like a delight to watch. He, you know, he, after the thriller era with the press intrusion and all that stuff, he, he started to sort of seem like he was on a downer a little bit. And, um, that documentary just captures Michael at his most vibrant and his most happy and sort of gleeful and, um, joyous and beautiful i think well 50 50 two against two four so me and angela we're excited for it uh and of course whatever 
future announcements there are in regards to Thriller uh, 3D or if anything Thriller 35 happens officially, we will keep you updated. So stay tuned. Um, before the next story, we're going to have a music break. Jamin, you found this one. It was the BJ Griffin and Jason Brown, The Way You Make Me Feel cover. Yeah, I saw it on, uh, I think it was listener J-Ron Malone um, was uh, sharing it around on Facebook. And when I saw it, it had already been out for about a year, but really blew me away nonetheless. So enjoy. I hadn't seen it, so I'm excited. Thank you. Up in 
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. And thanks for listening to the MJ cast. So a cool little video came out on YouTube recently uh, featuring Teddy Riley. It's by the Red Bull Music Academy. It's actually a two and a half hour Q&A with with, uh, musical genius Teddy Riley. Um, But only a little bit of that is on Michael Jackson. Um, So the the bit on Michael starts at about one hour, 29 minutes and 53 seconds. And he sort of goes into a fair bit of depth about his recording experiences with Michael during the dangerous era. It's a period of time that Teddy doesn't really speak about often and we don't have a lot of information on. A lot of uh, other Michael Jackson music producers tend to uh, do interviews and talk about their experiences a lot. But for whatever reason, Teddy's pretty you know, pretty coy about his experiences with Michael, even even though we know um, they made some great stuff together. So it's a good little video, some fun stories, and Q, I believe you watched it recently too. Yeah, I did. I, he speaks a bit about Michael's um, vocal exercises that, he, that he's done to keep his voice um, like as pristine and clear as it is. So he speaks about... Um, the vocals in remember the time specifically and recording those and then about um seth riggs michael's vocal coach how it was his idea for michael to speak in a high voice to exercise daily his vocal muscles so that he could have a big range because his natural voice is a lot deeper. So I thought that was really interesting. It was, it sort of reminded me of like um, a Brad Sundberg special, uh, it's not special, a seminar where, you know, he's just sharing these stories. It's, it was like that. It was really cool. So I didn't watch the whole 400 hours of it. I just watched the Michael <laughs> yeah. section and a little bit before and a little bit after. He, he also uh, spoke about Bobby Brown and the band, uh, music group Guy and – Black Street. So hearing a little bit about Bobby Brown was interesting as well. But yeah, it was cool. It was interesting to hear about the vocal stuff for Michael. And didn't he tell a story about something falling on Michael's head? Yes, which apparently has happened a couple of times by the yeah. sounds of it. It sounds like a similar story to the to um the story about the the thing falling on his head during the dangerous demo. Yeah. So maybe it was that story or maybe it was another time that it happened. But go, go check this out. It'll be in the show notes. And then fast forward if you only want to hear the Michael stuff. All right. Another sort of exciting for me anyway, because I like remixes um, almost as much as Charles dislikes them. Remixed by Nick has made a massive amount of his mixes available for download. Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, I do like Nick's remixes, but I got to say I like his stuff more where he only uses the sort of original components of uh, Michael's recordings and rarer components from multi-tracks and pieces together, what he calls reduxes. And luckily, all of those reduxes and remixes are all available in this in this massive mega download that we'll put a link to in the show notes. Very cool. I don't understand how to do all of that stuff, so I got the husband to download all that for me. Um, and then our computer died this week, so... Oh, that's no good. Like, it's permanently... It's it's gone. No, we think it's repairable, but... Okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, it's just iPad City in the house. So, <laughs> I, have, I hadn't synced more, any of my devices to the, the mixes. But he also... Nick just dropped a little summer album 
as well. Yeah. Nick, remixed by Nick Summer. And that's got, uh, has I know one Michael mix and one Janet mix in it. There's black or white and all for you. Yeah. And the black or white one's really interesting because it, um, from what I understand, it includes a guitar track on the song that was never actually used, but was buried in the multi-tracks and muted or something, which is kind of cool. And I saw Nick say on Facebook yesterday that Bill Bottrell had listened to his um, mix of Black or White and, and really loved it, which is crazy awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. But I don't know if that's included in this big download file, but... Um Otherwise, I think that he's got links on his site and YouTube and stuff to download that. And recently in other news, James Savechuck, one of the people that's uh, accusing Michael Jackson of child molestation, um, his case has been dismissed for good. And luckily, we've got Charles here, our legal expert, who's going to talk to us a little bit more about what's happened there. A couple of years ago, Wade Robson comes out of the woodwork and suddenly starts saying that he has been, uh, in fact, abused by Michael over a a number of years, having previously testified in Michael's 2005 trial that Michael never touched him. Uh, Following Wade Robson uh, coming forward with this story, Jimmy Savechuck uh, also comes forward with a similar story and joins Wade Robson's case. And then... Uh, a girl comes forward known as Jane Doe um, and also files a lawsuit. Um, Jane Doe's case has now been dismissed and the Jimmy Safechuck case has now also been dismissed. Um, basically, Robson originally tried to sue the estate as a proxy for Michael, uh, but was told he couldn't because his claim was out of date. So what he did was he filed lawsuits against a, a number of different companies that were owned and operated by or employed Michael, claiming that the companies had a duty to control Michael uh, and exercise a duty of care over the children that he came into contact with, effectively describing Michael's companies as the most sophisticated paedophile ring in world history, uh, saying that these companies would source children for Michael and then provide them to him and that the companies should, in fact, have been controlling Michael and stopping him from abusing children. Now, this angle has failed in the Safechuck case because uh, Michael was the sole owner and director of these companies, and therefore Safechuck was effectively arguing that Michael should have controlled himself. Ergo, this is basically just another claim against Michael who's dead and can't defend himself. So the case has now been thrown out. Robson's case has been brought now on the same premise as the Safechuck case. So all indications are that the Robson case will be thrown out for the exact same reason. Good riddance. Good riddance. Fucking jerks. And I just want to give a bit of a shout out too to um, your episode that you did, Charles, Pirates Neverland. I don't haven't had a chance to properly speak to you about that, but what a fantastic episode you did there um, with, with Ryan Michaels. And uh, basically anybody listening right now who wants more information and detail on the allegations against Michael Jackson, listen to that. Get educated. It was so good. Oh, thank you very much. I spoke to James Olay, who's a friend of the show, a few days ago, and he was saying that he played that episode to... Uh, to people who are not necessarily big Michael fans and that they actually changed their minds on Michael's uh, guilt as a result of listening to that show. So that was 
great news. Yeah. And that's exactly why we recorded it. So hopefully uh, they're not the only ones. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to say as well, that was a great episode over on the Reason Bound podcast with Ryan Michaels. And thank you for letting us simulcast that over here at the MJ cast. It did spectacularly well. It even helped us chart on the uh, iTunes podcast charts. So we really appreciate that. And we were really happy to present that terrific quality episode with great content out to a wider audience. So it was really good. And I actually just listened to his episode this week and um, it was good. He did a little update on that episode in his new show. And it was, yeah, another great episode from Ryan Michaels. It's a good podcast. I like listening to him. Charlie, would you like to tell us more about Quincy Jones being awarded uh, royalties in a dispute with the MJ estate? Sure. So Quincy Jones brought a lawsuit against the Michael Jackson estate, claiming that he was owed royalties from projects where songs that he had mixed and arranged had been used, uh, beginning shortly after Michael's death with the release of the This Is It movie. Um, the case basically hinged on what we refer to in the UK as customs and practice, uh, whereby Quincy and Michael had a contract together. And while Michael was alive, Michael interpreted that contract in a certain way, which was uh, the contract said words to the effect that whenever the music that Quincy arranged and produced was used, he was entitled to a royalty. Uh, Michael interpreted that to mean whenever the music was used in any context, which meant that, for instance, if a DVD came out with the music videos to those songs on the DVD, then Michael would pay Quincy Jones a royalty. When Michael died and the estate took over, they interpreted the contract as meaning only musical releases, as in albums. So, for instance, if they re-release the bad album, then Quincy should get paid but they did not interpret that as a meaning if the mixes were used, for instance, in the This Is It documentary or the Off The Wall documentary, that kind of thing. So Quincy Jones, understandably, is a bit miffed because for several decades this contract has been interpreted in one way and now Michael's died and all of a sudden the money men have started interpreting it in a different way. So he sues the Michael Jackson estate a legal expert claimed, an expert witness claimed in a document that he was owed up to 30 million. The Michael Jackson estate claimed that uh, they would accept that he was maybe owed two or three million dollars. Um, they went to court. Uh, Quincy put his case forward. He testified on the stand, uh, criticized the Michael Jackson estate, said they were getting rich off of Michael's death, said that he didn't care what the estate's interpretation of the contract was that Michael had honoured the contract in a certain way for decades and that should continue. And just just interrupting, sorry, Charlie, he he was very clear that he was not suing Michael Jackson. He was very clear that this was not against Michael Jackson, wasn't he? What did he sort of say in regards to that? He said, I'm not suing Michael, I'm suing your, I'm suing you all, uh, referring to the lawyers. Because the lawyers for the estate uh, were basically pursuing the line that Quincy was taking bread out of the mouths of Michael's children by bringing this lawsuit, which was outrageous. The case went to a jury. They went down the middle. 
they rejected both the uh, estates figure and Quincy Jones's experts figure, and they awarded him between nine and ten million dollars. Uh, so then the estate released one of the most ludicrous, childish, infantile disrespectful. statements I've ever seen. It was seen. so it was disrespectful. Absolutely outrageous and juvenile in the extreme. It was pathetic. It made the estate look absolutely pathetic, like children in a playground. They released a statement uh, basically saying that Quincy Jones was greedy, uh, that he was taking money from Michael Jackson's children, and that he was not a real artist, and the real artist was Michael Jackson. This wow. it was absolutely outrageous. It reminded me of when the estate a few years ago released a statement and they basically described Michael Jackson's relatives as conspiracy theorists who were deliberately left out of his will. It's, it, it's so, so juvenile, and it makes the estate look absolutely ridiculous. Um, that statement is absurd, and whoever wrote it should be sacked because it, it just made them look pathetic, um, really, really infantile. Where um, is that statement? Is it just on a quick Google search? It, yeah, you may be able to find it. I remember MJ Star published it. They basically sent the statement out to all their patsies in the fan community who regurgitated it obediently, right. as usual. Oh, I'm glad Didn't, that... Um, uh, in that case, there was some specific mention of the incredible Bad 25 remix of Bad. Is that... <laughs> That was, Is I thought, a highlight. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Quincy was none too impressed by some of the uh, projects to which or in which the estate included his original arrangements and, and what they did to them. One remix which merited particular attention in the lawsuit was Pitbull's remix on the Bad 25 set. And they actually called an expert witness to court to testify to how shit it was. <laughs> they <laughs> didn't need an expert to say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Far out. Well, I'm glad that, that Quincy has been awarded royalties that he was owed. Um, can I just ask a question about the contract? Was there something in there that the remixes and um, sort of alterations to tracks with are they meant to be offered to Quincy first to do any changes to is that something that I understand from the contract yeah that so he can he can turn stuff was, down but he's meant to be offered the opportunity that was his interpretation yeah that was that was what he was arguing in court oh, um, okay. basically that the estate was sort of diddling him out of um, work by not doing that um so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this uh, cartoon now mm. and whether they have to send some work to Quincy or something or whether Quincy maybe will will fight them or I don't know. Hopefully that would be good. Maybe he can shut the thing down. <laughs> or maybe they'll just bring uh, Jason Malachi and Eddie Cassio in to write some new songs. Stop. <laughs> Speaking of the Cassios... Yeah. Our oh, next yes. story is about Frank Cassio trying to auction off a burnt CD for $50,000 uh, that was uh, containing the uh, Cassio tracks in totality. Uh, tried to sell them on gotta have rock and roll.com. 
and due to some due to some mysterious behind the scenes uh, developments, that auction's now been pulled and it is still up for private sale though. But at least that album will not be getting into the hands of some um, unknowing buyer who's uh, unfortunately would have spent a lot of money on fake Michael Jackson songs. So what was actually on this burnt CD with a few scribbles on it that he was trying to auction? So the songs that were on the CD were the Casio tracks. So all of the ones that have already leaked. Um, but this CD is is wholly made up of the Casio tracks that were sold to Sony Music in 2010. So I don't know where this CD comes from. I don't know whether it was recently burnt. I don't know whether it was burnt in 2010. But Frank was trying to say that the, the CD was Michael's last album. Um, and oh. that, he, that he was was on those songs, and uh, it was it was an outright disgusting lie. Absolutely Makes me sick. It's ter- it's terrible, mm. but it goes to show that the Casio family, even today in 2017, are still trying to make money from those songs. They know that there's no other opportunity or chance for those songs to come out. Uh, in the future from Sony Music. Uh, Sony would be absolutely insane and crazy to ever release one of their songs again. They just won't do it. So I guess in their minds, they're thinking this is the only way we're ever going to make money off them anymore. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're... um, I mean, this is is just one of many, many, many items that Frank Cassio has put up on gottahaverockandroll.com. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, if they really need this money for something or other, maybe even a lawsuit that they're having to fund. Well, yeah, oh. it's, it's interesting that the, um, the uh, in the Casio lawsuit where the fan Vera Sarova is suing uh, Eddie Casio and Angelicson over the um, inclusion of the three fake songs on the first posthumous album, they uh, tried to force... Miss Sarova to pay their legal fees, which were in the region of fifty thousand dollars, and um, they were turned down by the court. The court said, "No, you have to pay your own fees." And then all of a sudden, this CD pops up on the auction website for fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, ridiculous. I actually tried to reach out to Frank Cassio to see if he'd like to come on the show to chat about his, you know, um, history with Michael Jackson. And uh, potentially even this sale as well. He did, you know, insinuate that he'd be interested and asked for me to email him a um, sort of like my ideas on what we could do together. And I never heard back. So, a shame. Unfortunately, we won't be hearing Frank's uh, <laughs> opinion on the matter or his story around uh, working with Michael, which would have been an interesting one to hear. Uh, but we'll uh, see what happens there in the future. I'm sure this won't be the last thing he tries to auction off. He's sold a bunch of other Michael, uh, allegedly Michael-related products before, so I'm sure this won't be the last little auction we see. Yeah, he keeps popping up every now and then with something. Yeah, he's he's often like sort of um, sidelined a little bit as not being a key player in the Casio story, and that certainly is the case in that he didn't plan to record the songs with Michael. That was more his brother. But in my mind, he is an actual key player because he knows well and good that the songs aren't Michael. He he um, was an employee of Michael Jackson, a very important employee. He was his personal assistant for many years. He set up many studio sessions. He worked for Michael in a lot of capacities. He knows those songs aren't Michael. He knows his brother's lying, yet he's still 
very much in the public eye defending the song's authenticity, both in his book and in interviews. It would be interesting if you could get him on. I'd love to. I mean, I just, as the MJ cast is, is a thing where we give opportunities for anyone to talk about their position on certain issues and their history. And I, I wanted to give him the chance to come on and tell his story. Is I mean, he's, I'm sure he's got a, a lot of amazing stories that he'd be willing to tell about working for Michael. And I encourage anyone connected to the Casio tracks or the Casio situation to come on the MJ cast to talk about your point of view of what happened and the truth around what happened. Um, that's all we're about is just talking about truthful stories about the king of pop. If he sold these to Sony, wouldn't it be like illegal for him to sell this, uh, sell them out, you know, sell the songs publicly? Um, that's a great question. And I think you're 100% right. And this has been the problem the whole way along is that the Casios are behaving in a fraudulent manner, both by selling um, fraudulent songs to Sony Music, but also in situations like this where they're selling songs that they have assumedly given the rights to, to Sony, but Sony and the estate aren't pursuing the Casios. Like, why not? Why why? It's just ridiculous when you think about the situation in the courtroom. Vera's on one side, Sony and the estate are on the other with Angelixon. Sony and the estate need to cross that courtroom and join Vera because they've been screwed over badly. They wait till we get to one of the later news items because it seems like we may be seeing a shift towards that scenario. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. Cool. So moving on to a singer that actually can sing really well, uh, Jermaine Jackson participated in the season finale, I'm guessing, the final episode of BBC's TV show Pitch Battle, which to me looks like some sort of singing contest like uh, like um, The Voice or something like that. Uh, and Jermaine came out and showed everyone how it was done. Did you guys get a chance to see this, Charlie? I haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah, I saw it. Um, I've got to say, the, it, yeah, you're right. It's, it looks like it's like an X Factor style competition, but for yep. choirs. Um, oh, okay. I didn't pick that specific. up. I had never heard of this show ever um, until Jermaine started tweeting that he was going to be on it. So I don't know what the ratings were like, but it's, you know, this is primetime weekend BBC One. Never heard of it. All I watched was Jermaine's performance and uh, he did very well, but um, I'd rather watch him sing it without a choir. Yeah, tell frankly. me about it. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but it was, what was nice was that after the performance, quite a few of the choir members were so overcome with emotion at having sung with Jermaine that they started crying on the stage. And then um, Mel Gidroyk, the um, presenter of the show, had to basically make a quick link and, and pass over to somebody else because she started crying as well. Um, so that was quite moving. But, um, you know, Jermaine is a great singer. And one of my, I think the last time I was on the show, my pick of the week, was Jermaine singing I'll Be There at the Antwerp proms with the um, the yes, orchestra. that was great. Yeah, but it was better than the BBC thing. Um, Jermaine is a great singer and it was nice to see him getting 
primetime plaudits on BBC. Yeah, I totally agreed. I mean, he's a, a singer that conveys a lot of emotion in his voice as well, and you can see that impact on the other choir members around him. Um, brilliant, brilliant vocalist, and I've said it a few times, but I've, I've lost the interview. There's an interview or some kind of phone call or something where Michael was recorded talking to somebody about um, Jermaine's voice, and um, Jermaine... Pray at some point in the press, Jermaine praised a vocal performance that Michael gave, and then in this in this interview or soundbite, Michael said to the person he was talking to, "That is great feedback coming from Jermaine." You know, so it's clear that Michael had so much respect for his brother as a vocalist, and so do I. All right, Stranger Things season two's first trailer premiered, and it brilliantly, brilliantly, and just expertly features michael jackson's thriller and it was fantastic oh man i had total goosebumps from this it is absolute evidence and proof that when michael's intellectual property and art is used tastefully with really really great franchises it just is incredible and the world is excited for this i had students in my classroom yesterday saying to me did you watch the stranger things 2 trailer oh my god mr bull it's um michael's in it you would have loved it and i was like yep all over it i can't wait uh, this it sounded great. It didn't sound like um, the original mix of Thriller. It sounds like there's something else going on there. I don't know if there's some orchestra behind it, but it, it definitely sounds like they've they've mixed a score for Stranger Things in with it a little bit. Uh, but I can't wait for this show. Hopefully, the song and Michael features a little bit more in the show too, and maybe hopefully it's even on a soundtrack. I hope it's on the soundtrack. We're gonna listen to it now. And then we'll come back out and discuss it a little bit more. Nothing's going to go back to the way that it was. Not really. I saw something. What is it? I don't know. I felt it everywhere. Darkness falls across the land. Midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. Whosoever shall be found. Sometimes I feel like I still see you. Must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Whatever is happening is spreading from this place. What does it want? Not me. Everyone else.
there we go, folks. That link will be in the show notes as well. But that is a video which features uh, the the music that was used in the Stranger Things season two trailer which premiered at san diego comic con also in the show notes there will be a little link for an article about uh, executive producer sean levy speaking how difficult it was to get the rights to use that uh i'm not sure if it was in reference to the estate or maybe rod temperton's estate has something to do with rights of the track and how it's used i'm not too sure or quincy or Quincy even, maybe. Who knows? It's not specified. He would not say, um, my guess it's the estate, to be honest. But that's just my on my little opinion. But, guys, have you seen and heard this, this track as well, Charles? Uh, I've seen the trailer, but I yep. literally have no idea whatsoever what Stranger Things is. I don't know what it is. I've never heard of it. Really? Do you have Netflix, Charles? I doubt um, it. It's an app, I mean, isn't I it? I do have Netflix, but I you don't do. Use it. I'm yeah. so shocked. Well, I don't have it. My brother has it. That's why you don't know about it because it's a Netflix-only show. Yep, and it's brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's very 80s. retro. It's like a sort of yeah. a horror TV show about these kids that discover this really mysterious thing, and uh, it's very retro all the way through it. There's like retro board games, computer games, fashion. It's set in the 80s, and it's just so so 80s. So the song yeah. is, is beautifully perfect. Perfect fit. Perfect yeah. fit. I I don't. I think hopefully if they do a soundtrack, it might be featured on that. I hope but I don't think that there'll be any further Michael references in the TV show at all. I think this is just a promo thing. I wouldn't be surprised if they've put the th- thriller in the in the promo, then I wouldn't be surprised if we see a couple of MJ T-shirts or something in there. We'll see. That would we'll be see. the extent. Maybe yeah. a T-shirt or a jacket or them talking about the film clip if it's the correct time time for that in the series, but I don't expect much. I don't think we'll have any more Michael music or anything in there. Um, no. I'm with you on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some little nods here and there. Maybe a kid's got like um, white socks on and black loafers or who knows. We'll see. Mm, we'll see. Did you we'll see. like it, Angela? I haven't seen Stranger Things. Again, I've, I've never heard of it either, but from what you've told me, it sounds pretty awesome. It is. Have you watched this trailer? <laughs> I haven't seen the trailer, no. Um, I've seen a lot of positive hype about it on Twitter, though, so it's definitely something that I'm going to get onto. Well, links will be in the show notes. Go check it out. And then, yeah, it's an interesting little interview with the producer about how difficult it was to get. I thought that was a nice little addition to add to this great story. It was so good to have something good to talk about online, actually. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's it's very rare that we get awesome Michael Jackson news every, and when it happens, it's cool. <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, you. how did we get to this space where the highlight of the calendar year is <laughs> one of Michael's songs being used in a trailer? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, yeah. That is not the hallmark of a good estate, you know, is... <laughs> is pretty it's pretty lame in real terms but you know i watched the trailer I, don't, I literally don't know what the show is but you know it worked well the song worked well with the trailer but it's really what 
what has gone wrong that we're all shitting our pants about a trailer. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm. well, I think it's more that Q and I are mega fans of Stranger Things as well. So it's so uh, it's cool to see the this marriage of these two things we love in one. But um, very you, unexpected. Yeah, you are right, Charlie. <laughs> totally. <laughs> But speaking of why, you know, it's such a shock that something actually goes really well for a change and it's a highlight when something so simple is good news, more MJ Estate Sony news. Who wants to explain that the MyJack catalogue has now been bought out? or What's the deal with this? Basically, the Michael Jackson Estate is allowing Sony, who Michael hated, to administer the rights to his MyJack catalog, so his solo adult output as a musician. So what that means is they will become responsible for licensing effectively. So, uh, for instance, where, where you were talking about how difficult it was for the Stranger Things people to get the rights to Thriller for their trailer, this is the kind of thing that this deal applies to uh the licensing of uh music for commercial ventures like commercial you know tv commercials uh, movies uh it's been difficult um for a lot of people to get hold of michael's stuff for that purpose so there was a movie that they were making a couple of years ago and i forget what it was now where they were trying to get holograms of all these different 80s stars that were going to appear in the film do you remember this and and they gave an interview the filmmakers saying how they really wanted michael jackson but the um the estate just put a dollar sign on it which was so high that they felt it was basically a fuck off you know like they knew that the company would never ever ever pay that much money so it was basically just a way of getting rid of them. Um, but yeah, so effectively, Sony, who Michael despised, is now in charge of the licensing of Michael's music. That's that's what it boils down to. So I saw a lot of really angry fans online that were saying this is the Michael Jackson estate renewing a musical contract with Sony to release Michael's music, you know, into the future. So what you're saying is that's, that's not what's going on here. That is not my understanding of the situation. No, uh, MJ estate and Sony had a deal, a seven year deal where they could release up to 10 products via Sony so things like the This Is It DVD and um, the off-the-wall chalk shit thing, what else, the Pitbull and all the that Michael shit. The Michael album. The Mike, Yeah, the Casio tracks, yeah, who could forget. So basically that, that deal, as far as I'm aware, has not been renewed. It is purely the administration of the MyJack catalogue, which has been extended. Uh, so Sony's control over the licensing of Michael's music has been extended. Do you think Mm -hmm. that that might be because Michael might technically be an unsigned artist at the moment? Like maybe all of those, the the whole deal with the estate and the 10 projects is now finished and dusted. All of the projects have been released. There is no current deal. So they still needed someone to do this job for licensing 
Oh, they definitely need someone to do the job. It's just a bit of a poke in the eye that the only people they considered for the role is the one company that Michael hated mm. with every fibre of his being. Um, I mean, there's plenty of companies out there that could do this. And uh, sadly, they've chosen to farm it out to Michael's mortal enemies. But, um, you know, that was always going to happen. As long as John Branker is in charge of this estate, no company but Sony is going to get a look in. Didn't People... Michael have a list? Sorry. Um... Yeah, yeah, he did. Are you talking about the uh, the career map that they found in his room? Well, yeah, I remember there was a list that um, of all these record companies that he wanted to work with once his uh, deal expired. Yeah, yeah, there was. It was like a career map, and he had. Um, two companies written down on this piece of paper that he wanted to use for his new album. There were two companies written down this piece of paper and Michael wanted to work with one of them on his new album. Uh, Sony was not on the list. And of course we know from the bodyguards book that Michael despised Sony to the end um, and went so far as somebody bought him a pair of headphones. He sent somebody out to buy him a pair of headphones and they came back and the headphones that they bought him were a pair of Sony headphones, and so he smashed them up, uh, wouldn't use them. Um, he despised Sony, and that's why it's such an insult that the estate, which is supposed to represent Michael in death, continues to pour him out to the uh, the one company that he absolutely hated and despised and never wanted to work with again. So there's a lot of talk about Michael hating Sony, and we all know that you know he did especially after Invincible Era. But you can't deny that he ended up going back to work with Sony again to release the Thriller 25 project. So if oh, he, he hated to, Sony so much, why would he do that project with them? Because they still controlled the rights to the Thriller album. Mm. Um, so if he wanted to cash in on the anniversary, which he desperately needed to do, the only people he could work with were Sony. And what he did was he, um, he fucked them uh, basically, he promised that he was going to do a bunch of promo and this, that, and the other. And then as soon as the album came out, he legged it and abandoned all the promo and uh, left them holding the bag. He effectively took the money and ran. <laughs> he was supposed to do uh, a TV special in the UK. He was supposed to appear on The X Factor. He was supposed to perform at the Grammys. He was supposed to be interviewed for the Thriller Casts, that set of uh, Thriller-based podcasts that Sony was releasing via the Michael Jackson website. And as soon as the album came out, he uh, did a runner and um, welshed on all of those agreements and disappeared. Sony was furious. The Grammys were furious. Um, but, yeah, that, that was what happened. He basically... Um, took the money and ran. He worked with them because he had to work with them um, is the long and short of it. Got it. Awesome. Thank you, Charlie. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've got, we need to hear more from you though, because there was some documents that we put up on our website, which were from December last year. So we knew the outcome of those cases in December, but we never had access to the transcripts. And this was regarding the Vera Sarova Casio case. And 
yes, get back under your bridge, Corganex. We weren't building this up to be something that it wasn't. We were just presenting information and documents that we had access to for the first time. Would you like to explain what these court transcripts sort of uh, showed us, Charlie? Yeah, so the transcript is long. It's about 55 pages long. Uh, lots of it rehashes info that uh, has been gone over uh, in various prior episodes of the MJ cast. It goes back over the slap case, the allegation that this was a strategic lawsuit against public participation. That's what the uh, defendants in this case were arguing, defendants being Sony, the estate, John Branker, Angelics and James Port, Eddie Cassio, MJJ Productions and so on. They were saying that Vera Sarova, the fan who's suing over the fake song, was uh, basically trying to restrict their freedom of speech and that when they claimed that Michael Sang was on the Michael album, uh, that was not a statement of fact and commercial speech. It was, in fact, a comment on a public interest debate. Um, so much of the transcript rehashes that stuff, which I've already explained time and again on, on the MJ cast. But what we do get is uh, earlier, Jamin was saying, uh, why does the uh, estate and MJJ Productions and Sony and so on, why don't they cross the floor and join Vera Sarova and turn on the Angelics and defendants? Well, that is what they appear to do in this court transcript. So in uh, in the transcript, Zia Madala, who is acting for John Branca and Sony, stands up and says that uh, Michael was dead and that the only people, therefore, in a position to say whether he recorded the Casio songs or not were the Casio defendants, i.e. Eddie Casio, James Port, and Angelicson Productions. Therefore... The uh, defendants, the other defendants, Sony, the estate, MJJ Productions, proceeded on the basis of the facts as they knew them at the time. Now, the judge who's presiding over the hearing, I think what he's saying is we were as duped as the plaintiffs. We want to come over and join the class. We didn't know that you guys were recording stuff in a basement that wasn't by Michael. You told us it was Michael. We believed it was Michael. And if there is a bad guy here who was engaged in false commercial speech. It's not us. That is called getting thrown under the bus. That's the judge's comment. The judge goes on to say that perhaps the album should have been called Maybe Michael instead of being called Michael. And then Andy Demko, who is uh, another solicitor or lawyer uh, acting for Branker, Sony and MJJ Productions, says, we didn't know it was Michael. We are submitting now that it may have turned out not to be. But at the time we made the statements, there is no stipulation that at the time we made the statements, we knew. So basically, in this transcript, we see the lawyers acting for Sony, MJJ Productions and John Branco on behalf of the estate, saying that they now concede that there is a likelihood that these songs were not recorded by Michael Jackson. And they're basically shifting all of the blame onto Casio, Port and Angelics and Productions. Right. So if and and that's a great summary. Thank you, Charles. And it seems to me to be a fantastic development in the Casio saga because we're seeing now that um, Sony and the estate are at least willing to acknowledge that uh, not everything is what it seemed to be. Uh, now, if you go to the Michael Jackson archives, 
on Facebook. Um, there's a there's a lot of discussion about this these these documents. We also have a lot of discussion about them on our Facebook page at the MJ Cast. But um, I pretty much go to the Michael Jackson archives a fair bit to find out my news. And there's 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 mostly um, excited positive comments on these. But there's a couple of them. Corgnex, for example, says it's ironic to say the least when some of Michael Jackson's fans criticize the media for sensationalism and disturbing the facts. And then the MJ cast chooses to sensationalize an eight-month-old transcript by taking a hypothetical phrase when, in fact, the court was discussing marketing behavior. Um, And then Gary Crocker replies and says, indeed, as I said, hypotheticals, so best not to cherry-pick certain lines. So what are your (laughs) thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are let's listen to what the judge says, shall we? The judge says, I think what he's saying is we were as duped as the plaintiffs. We want to come over and join the class. We didn't know you guys were recording stuff in the basement that wasn't by Michael. You told us it was Michael. We believed it was Michael. And if there is a bad guy who was engaged in false commercial speech, is not us. That is called getting thrown under the bus. That is the judge's appraisal of the position of Sony... MJJ Productions and the estate. The judge says in open court in the transcript that Sony, MJJ Productions and the estate are throwing the Angelics and defendants under the bus and shifting all the blame onto them. So we didn't sensationalize anything. So No. Just putting that out there. Putting it out there. (laughs) Thanks for your opinions. And thank you, Charles, for exploring that with us. We'll have many more documents and transcripts to come, I'm sure. You need to go to themjcast.com slash Casio case to be kept up to date with all the latest court documents. We're now going to hear a reinterpretation of Michael Jackson's original Groove of Midnight demo, um, a new creation that's called Midnight Groove. Enjoy.
Hi, this is Sam from the Michael Jackson Academia Project, and you are listening to the MJ Cast. All right, so Michael Jackson's birthday is coming up. Uh, it's in late August, and a man called Spike Lee, who makes movies, is going to celebrate that birthday by doing his sixth annual Brooklyn Loves Michael Jackson block party, uh, August 27th. 12 till 6 p.m. in New York, and it will be um, DJed by DJ Spinner. And from what I understand, these are pretty epic parties that people really love going to with lots of awesome um, popular and rare Michael Jackson tracks mixed into an awesome six-hour crazy dance session amongst other performances as well. I wish they did that in more cities. Yeah. I know, I know it's a very cultural thing, so in Australia and just be like a big day out, bunch of bogans or something. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe in some other American cities or something or a spike went over to London or something. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've never actually been to one obviously and, and stuff, but I, every year I make sure to look at all the photos from the events because like so many legit, awesome Michael Jackson fans go to this event and they dress up and they, they just do awesome artworks that they take as well. And it just looks like this incredible celebration of Michael and his art. And it's sort of like the vibe of um, when just after he passed away and people would gather at like important Michael locations like the Apollo Theater and stuff and just have those sessions of getting together and listening to his music and just, just love and Michael. It's like that yeah. every year Very much. in one spot. Yep. And that is as much as I don't really um, think Spike did the best job with those documentaries he was put in charge of. Um, this is one thing that that I fully respect him for uh, for putting these shows together. Yeah, I love seeing the videos that come out of him, and it's so real and so raw and just so fun. Yeah, so cool. Just a quick other little birthday thing. I know um, over at. Uh, MJFFC, MJ fans for charity every year. I think it's Steve. He does a sort of a big online birthday celebration for the fans that aren't actually attending birthday celebrations. It's the M uh, Michael Jackson global birthday party. So I will remember, I will copy the link now, um, put it in the show notes that he's doing this sort of online global birthday party where fans can sort of put live videos or be in live videos. Like it's like a live fan catch up all around the world. So I think that's pretty cool. And it is a charity Mm. fundraiser as well. I think it's the, um, not sure if this year's charity has been decided on yet, but uh, head over to mjffc.org.uk for details on the global birthday party that will be online as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we were talking a little bit earlier about Michael's relationship with the Grammy Awards, which was a bit tumultuous during the last couple of years of his life. Um, But interestingly, now the Grammy Museum seems to have added some Michael Jackson artifacts to their collection. Yes, they have added some drawings and documents so one of the drawings was from a costume designer which i hadn't heard of him working with michael before so and the the drawing that they feature in the videos 
seems to be a costume that was absolutely never chosen and used. It was not in sort of similar style to what I'd seen on Michael before, but they've also added, I think, some items from the estate collection. So there was Victory Tour Fedora and Glove and some We Are The World documents as well from the um, recording. But I've actually been to the Grammy Museum and it was in 2009, I believe. Yes, it was. And it was after Michael's passing. So they actually had quite a substantial exhibit on Michael. And it looks like they have got a good size exhibit on Michael in the Grammy Museum again. And if you are going to LA or in LA, go to the Grammy Museum because it is fantastic. And this is the sort of exhibit on a much smaller scale sadly of what we deserve to see of michael's uh, artifacts angela and i have been as well to the grammy museum and seen the um the michael exhibit at the time we were there it was just one display case uh but i think they had a thriller jacket and uh they had the white suit that he wore on the thriller album cover and i forget what else um, they had some of those beautiful Victory Tour sequin jackets, maybe? I just don't remember. I, I have photos somewhere. Oh, um, when I was the, there, we weren't allowed to take photos. No, we really weren't nice. either. <laughs> oh, okay, right. <laughs> God, you're just, a rebel, Charles. The break into Holy Terrace, you know. Yeah, exactly. Into the fuck, man. Just, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, what are they going to do? Arrest us for taking a picture? Who gives a shit? So... Um, yeah, we and, and the Grammy Museum is just a great place generally. I've got to say it's fantastic. The last time I was there, they have this like multimedia room where you can go and sit on a computer and search through a database of musicians that you like. And then they have all rare footage and stuff. So I'm a huge funk music fan. And I, I was listening to this great interview that um, Bootsy Collins gave to the Grammy Museum. It, you can spend a whole day there if you want to, if you're really interested in music. They have um, a, a band area set up where you can play instruments and all kinds of stuff. It's a great day out. Shout out to Paul Black, who's probably listening and took me to the Grammy Museum back in 2009 because it was a definite highlight. When I was there, there was multiple display cases, which there is currently. So I definitely urge you go and check it out because there's a number of display cases at the moment. But the seeing like the victory jackets from the tour and um, when he got his star on the Walk of Fame, like just seeing those jackets were mind blowing because pictures cannot convey the detail that make up these jackets they are not just sequins thrown onto a jacket they are often millions of individual little beads of all sizes and patterns making up the detail it was phenomenal to see phenomenal what it'd be cool is if they had the jackets um and clothing that he wore um in his acceptance speeches at the grammy awards um, like his 93 Legend Award and the, the one where he got like the arm full of awards for Thriller. I think it was 83, wasn't it? Um, do they have those there? Or I'm trying to remember what jackets they were in particular. I know that at the MJ1 show in Vegas, there's a red military jacket. I think that was yeah. one that he wore at a Grammys possibly. 
Maybe the one where he got snubbed for yeah. bad. I can't remember. Don't know. Very cool. Pretty cool. If you're one of our LA listeners, make sure you head along 800 West Olympic Boulevard. Please share. And if you do sneak photos, sneak those photos and share with us. Nice. Okay. So that's the end of the news for today. Now we are going to hear from a couple of big time MJ fans. We want to get their fan stories down so we can learn about how they became Michael Jackson fans and their journey, I guess, as fans. So shall we start with Angela? Yeah. Angela, who are you? Who am I? (laughs) Who are you? Yes. What a deep question to start with. (laughs) I don't even know how to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) How, How do you know Charlie and how did you become a Michael Jackson fan and were you part of the bigger MJ community, like online and stuff like that? Um, I met Charlie at a James Brown concert. Actually, no, we met on, it was a Michael Jackson forum, wasn't it? Which one was it? KOP, I believe, before I got, okay. bla- uh, before I got banned for saying Michael wore a wig. That was, That's um, the one. That was one of several forums I was banned from for saying Michael wore a wig. Which he did. Shocking. Um, Are you yeah, sure? We, we, <laughs> we met in person at a James Brown concert at the Forum in Kentish Town, London, on the 26th of June, I believe, in 2005. I can't believe you remember the date. That's amazing. Well, I remember it because it was my dad's birthday um, and wow. I had to leave uh, his birthday barbecue early because I'd bought the tickets way before we knew that that barbecue was happening. So I went to the first half of his birthday barbecue and then legged it to the train station and came to meet you. And um, we ended up on the barrier. We ended up front row. James. I, I also, I also fell down the stairs oh, on yeah. the way in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fell down the stairs because, uh, I don't know, I just got really excited. It was really dark in there, and I just took a step forward thinking it was all flat fell down the stairs, did my ankle in, um, and then I was just sort of in pain, leaning on the stage and half on Charlie for the rest of the for the rest of the gig. If this was a video podcast, I'd be putting a clip of Ty falling down the stairs in Clueless at this point because <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> well, it's kind of it was, Angela's It was really thing. embarrassing. You, Angela falls over with me at least once a year. Generally, yeah. when we're on holiday and we need to do lots of walking, she did it this year at the Echo Mountain Trail in Los Angeles. Conveniently, got her out of another hike. That was uh, <laughs> a bit suspicious. This was after the hike. Yeah, but we were supposed to hike the Hollywood Hills, and then you couldn't do it because you fucked your ankle up. I, I, I seem to remember you didn't you didn't want to do that hike. I still I think maybe I was pushed. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, we just climbed to the top of this mountain, and then we came all the way back down the mountain, and we were walking on a completely flat tarmac road, and Angela suddenly fell over. It was uh, all very bizarre. Yeah. I tend to do that as well, falling over curbs and while walking on footpaths and things. This was a flat road. Hilarious. She literally so it fell was over. It was like, a, was it was like a, a matchstick or something. Tripped anyway. A matchstick. So moving on, what was the other part of the question? So how did you first become an MJ fan? 
Um, do you know what? I, as far back as I can remember, I've always been a fan. I, you know what? There's pictures of me as like a as a toddler dressed in like a fedora, and uh, you know the uh, sparkly jacket. But I, my earliest memory of being like really wowed by Michael was the uh, the Dangerous Tour. I think it aired on BBC One or BBC Two or something um years ago and I, I stayed up to watch it I think it was live and I, I managed to watch up to Smooth Criminal and then I had to I was being you know I had to go to bed my family recorded the rest of the the concert and I just remember watching that concert for years just over and over and over again and it always start from Smooth Criminal um so yeah that was just like the first thing that I remember just being wowed by him and then you obviously continue being a fan for long after that. And what what albums came out during when you were a fan? Do you remember those moments when different music was being released? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't remember Dangerous so much. I, I, I don't know how old I would have been. But um, the History album, I remember that was, yeah, that was quite an event. Um, they, they pulled the History album after a little while because of the They Don't Care About Us the edit that they did they pulled that and then redid it so you were in where, whereabouts were you living at the time of the history release in london so i remember the the statue that went by on uh, on the thames did you see um, that i no i didn't i didn't see that i i can't remember if i saw it on um so i think i went to like amsterdam or somewhere was it was it transferred? Is it is it somewhere abroad now? Yeah, like there, well, Fr- there's a number of them, but there is one in Holland in a town called Best at a McDonald's. I think I may have seen that one, but no, not at the time. I didn't see it. Okay, and then so you, um, later on, after History came out, did you ever see? Did you ever get the chance to see Michael Jackson live? You saw, I know you saw him at the World Music Awards. Um, I saw him, yeah, the history tour at Wembley. Um, I just, I was so young. I just remember being on my brother-in-law's shoulders and having, um, they, they had these like little yellow binoculars that they sold with, with, it was either history or like the MJ logo on the side. So I, I bought some of those and uh, was watching the concert through those onto from the screen because he was just I was I was so far back yeah and I think I still have my program from that oh that's cool <laughs> do you have many memories of that concert like seeing the history show um no unfortunately not it's just I mean if I, I remember being really excited I remember I'll tell you what when I was walking back from school there was like a newspaper like sort of blowing in the wind upon my feet and I grabbed it because I saw that it was a massive full page ad of the history tour I remember legging it to the to my house the rest of the way and um throwing it in front of my sister and saying you know we've got to get tickets for this now so I remember that (laughs) I remember the walk up through Wembley I I seem to remember walking through this long sort of tunnel type thing and buying merchandise I bought like a, a small program and then some other girls came up to me and said oh you know, we swap it with us because we can't. They had the bigger ones, um, and they didn't want to like carry it around. So, uh, yeah, I don't really remember much from the actual concert except for just sort of being on the on my brother-in-law's shoulders, trying to see what was going on. 
I think I was just too young. But that was my first concert. And was it the case that you and Charlie would have been at the same concert? I no, I think we determined that we were actually diff- at different dates. Hang on, Ange, didn't you see Michael prehistory? Didn't you see him at his hotel or something? Yeah, but they're not live. Oh, okay. That was just that. That was um, the day before he did. Uh, what Brits was it called? Yeah, that was it. Sorry, the Brits. Uh, it was the day before at Lanesborough. But nothing much happened. He literally. He literally Tell us that. I love hotel stories. I it's, love hotel stories. That that story is not so interesting. Um, I mean, there was there's times like at the Dorchester where you know we would be there for hours and it'd be freezing cold and then you'd have uh, a few mopeds turn up with stacks of pizza from Domino's and they would just be handed out so you know I think that happened twice at the Dorchester where he ordered pizza the Hempel as well um he sent out the staff that worked at the hotel with trays of like hot chocolate coffee tea so, I mean, there's, like, nice little things like that. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> and also, Angela was there in 2005 on the occasion where Raymond Bain came downstairs and tipped the fans off that Michael was on his way to a recording studio. And that was the those were the famous pictures where Michael got mobbed at the recording studio and had to climb on top of his car. Oh, um, yes. Angela was there at the studio. And that was where you saw, didn't you, a photographer assault Michael? Yeah, I think he, he he grabbed on his hair, and um, I I mean I when I was in that car park, um, it was the Metropolis Studios, I think it was. It was so frenzied and so scary. Like I I I wasn't kind of you know, like, ah, it's Michael. I, I I kind of stood back and was just watching what was happening around me. And, you know, I just remembered being, like, really worried. And I started actually shouting at the at the fans to, like, you know, back off of him a bit because he, he just looked really, um, I don't know. I, I My memory of it is that he looked worried. But then a few days later, I remember seeing a, like, a, a news like, footage of when he went away from the car and then through another door and there was a camera on the other side of the door from where we were. So Michael joins where the camera is. And it, I don't know, it just seems a bit like, oh, well, maybe that's what they wanted to happen. Like they wanted that frenzy. It was was totally a stunt. What happened was um, Raymond Bain told all the fans where Michael was going. So they knew that when Michael got there, there'd be hundreds of fans waiting for him. He got there with no security and had to climb on top of his car. Meanwhile, Michael had a cameraman in the corner of the car park Mm. filming the whole thing. And then Michael's team syndicated the footage with a two C's watermark in the top right hand corner. That was uh, the supposed label that he was signed to in Bahrain at the time. Uh, They syndicated the footage with a two C's records logo in the top corner uh, to all of the news stations in the UK. Uh, as a sort of a puff piece, you know, Michael Jackson's been mobbed in London. So the whole thing was a setup. It kind of, you know, you've got these fans there panicking and thinking, oh my God, he's going to get killed. And the whole thing was a setup. Crazy. 
But one thing Angela did witness was uh, a photographer was trying to get Michael's attention so that he could take a picture of him. And um, Michael couldn't hear him because of the, the maelstrom of all the fans. And so the photographer reached over and grabbed Michael's hair and physically pulled his face around towards him and then started taking pictures. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah. I, hate, yeah. I hate paparazzi. The other thing that happened was when he was on top of the car, he put his hands together um, and started saying thank you and like sort of nodding his head to, to everyone that was around. And the next day in, I think, well, I don't know if I can mention the publication, but in, the, in one of the newspapers, they said that he got on top of the car and began praying. So it's just, <laughs> you know, kind of absurd how they can how they twist. can twist stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In the 2000s, it wasn't the nicest time for Michael Jackson fans, you know, coming off an amazing decade with Dangerous and History and Blood on the Dance Floor and then seeing all the difficulties Michael had with the allegations and um, various difficult situations he was in in the media. How did you handle that as a fan? Did your appreciation of Michael remain as strong all the way through the 2000s? Although through the 2000s, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, you know, I stayed on top of the trial as much as I could. You know, 100% believed that he was innocent. The main thing I remember that through that time was just explaining a lot, you know, to 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 people that were like non-fans, just everyday people that you meet in your life, you know, what was going on, and trying to fill out fill out a bit more detail than what they were getting, and try to. It, it just felt very, you know, draining, uh, to be honest. Did you love Invincible? I There's a few songs on Invincible that I like. I like Butterflies, <laughs> Break of Dawn. But, yeah, on the, I mean, it's, it's not my favourite album, but I don't hate it. And, like, it sounded super exciting when you did get to see him at the World Music Awards in 2006. Yeah, that was um, that was great. I mean, it, it went by so quick. It was such a weird uh, event, like with well, um, you know, there's a whole episode on on that. But yeah, I mean, it was it was great to see him, and that was after the trial, wasn't it? Yeah, two thousand six. Yeah, and it was great to see him <clears throat> get such a phenomenal response from the crowd. It was really moving really kind of heartwarming because you didn't know how he was going to be received after the trial and to see him be received so emphatically positively was it really was moving you felt very proud of him that's how I felt I felt proud and uh, really happy for him and of course then the media just shat all over it the next day yeah can I tell a quick little story yes okay so I can't remember the year of it, but um, Michael was staying at the Dorchester and it, it's nothing like fascinating, but it's just a nice moment. So yeah, Michael was staying at the Dorchester and we sort of got a tip off that he was going to go and watch Mary Poppins. So me and a few other fans, we managed to get in and we were sitting about a row behind him, but to the right. 
Um, and when he came in, and when we came in as well, um, the show had already started. Every, all the lights were down. Um, so no one actually knew that he was there except for us. And then just before the interval, the lights didn't quite go up, but the, the curtain had come down. And you could see his bodyguards run to where Michael was sitting. Michael and his three kids got up and walked up the aisle. And everyone in that, you know, everyone in the theatre was just like, all you could hear is, that's Michael Jackson, that's Michael Jackson. You know, they're all just really kind of couldn't believe what they were seeing. And throughout the interval, all anyone was talking about in this giant uh, theatre was, Michael Jackson's here, Michael Jackson's here. And, and you know, we had like two um, two school groups behind me that were all just, the teachers couldn't, you know, contain them. They were just all so excited. Um, and then so at one point the manager comes in and he has to, you know, address the, the, the auditorium and say, you know, can everyone just calm down? We want to we want to restart the show for the second act, um, and everyone goes quiet. And then Michael walks through the door, and he gets a standing ovation from the you know the entire auditorium. It was and the kids were going crazy, and it was just it was just a really nice moment that it was. I mean, these there was probably about five fans in the auditorium. They, these were just like normal theatre goers, and he got a standing ovation. This was after the trial as well, so. It was just a nice, nice moment. Love it. That's such wow. an awesome story. That's what you're here for, to share stuff like that. That is brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. I'd never oh, heard that wow. story before. That's cool. Yes, you're welcome. That is cool. So you are a Michael Jackson fan. What are some of your favourite, like, songs? What, what are your favourite Michael things? <laughs> See, I love Moonwalker, but, it, I mean, it is a terrible film, but I love it for, like, the nostalgic <laughs> Uh, well, as you it. well should. It's yeah, I, I do love it. I, I absolutely Good. love it. Um, my favourite song, I have... Uh, I, I wish I could pick something, like, really obscure for you, but I, my favourite song is Will You Be There. Um, I just cool. think it's beautiful. I have um, a lyric of it tattooed on my arm, which I got done uh, just after he died. Um we're going to need a photo of that for the show notes. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> it needs touching up. It's sort of bleeding out a bit. Uh, Charlie, you've got the whole Dangerous album cover tattooed on your back, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have it tattooed internally, uh, so it's just for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's oh. great. That's cool. And okay, so fav- so will you be there and Moonwalker? Uh, what what other things do you just love? Like, what's your have you got a, like a collection of stuff? What's your favorite piece that you might have in it? Your favorite MJ books? When I was younger, I used to collect anything and everything of Michael. But you know, as I get older, you just sort of find you need to have more space, <laughs> um, you know, to kind of store everything. So literally, the only thing I collect now is what was released in terms of music um, and and DVDs. So in terms of collection, I don't really have that much. Um, I have some books, which I haven't read. I'm not going to lie. I think the only book I've read is uh, Randy Tarabrelli's one. Have you got Jermaine's? I've got it. I haven't should, read it. <laughs> you should read it. It's really good. And check out Damien Shields' Escape Origins. It's good too. Oh, God. <laughs> Plug. 
<laughs> Shameless plugging again. <laughs> Just because your name's in it, Jamin. Jeez. Oh, yeah, so are you. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I wasn't plugging it. You were. True, true. I think travelling with a king's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. good. I want to buy that one day. I still haven't bought it yet. But when yeah. I do travel and do some MJ theme travel, I'll be getting that one for sure. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating to go through it. Is that where you got the tip <clears throat> to break into to Holy Terrace? <laughs> that was all I'm, Charlie. Yeah, I know. I'm joking. The book does not <laughs> condone such things. It's a travel book like Lonely <laughs> Planet, guys. I'm just joking. What about favourite tour? Um, again, it's going to have to be dangerous. It, it's the one that I you know like I said earlier it's the one that I um remember watching first and so yeah. it it still holds that for me even with the gold leo thong um I I've learned to deal with it so <laughs> yeah block it out <laughs> some people love it ali <laughs> funny so how it how has it been being a MJ fan friend of everyone's happiest fan friend, Charlie? He is the funniest, just the funniest person you'll ever meet. Well, that's um, why everyone does, loves him on the show. Uh, yeah. He's so funny. <laughs> he is. He's hilarious. And he does these Im- amazing impressions. What? Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I heard what? him do a Michael Jackson voice impression once. It was crazy. I've heard him do Jermaine. He does a great James Brown one. Come on, Charles. You have been holding out. What the hell? We've had you on how many shows and you've never gifted us with impressions, even like in jokes and stuff. I'm very disappointed. And he's probably hung up on us now. (laughs) (laughs) God. Well, there we go. Now we know. You better be dropping some in the future, buddy. Okay, where's Charlie? I'm uh, refusing to do any impressions. <laughs> That's not fair. You've given me some great ones on the phone. Why haven't I had any? You need to get into a car with him. You need to drive <laughs> down a long road in a car with him. We were um, when we were in LA. We were doing. Um, we were. We got sick of the CDs that we had because we didn't have many. So we were taking it in turns to sing songs by the wrong artists. <laughs> so uh, we did – who did we do? We did Barbara Streisand. You we nailed did, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> we did uh, James Brown. Who, who else did we do? Oh, anyway. Uh, but well. that was good fun. Janet. <laughs> did, oh, yeah, we did do Janet. <laughs> Moving on, yeah. let's let's leave that. All right, shall Angela, shall we shall we get to Charles and shall he tell us some stuff that he likes? What do you think? Well, um oh, okay, sorry, I interrupted you guys. I was gonna ask Angela where we can find you online. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Akaside, A K K A S I D E. Cool. So listeners, if you want to reach out to Angela and get to know her a little bit more, that's where you can find her. And Wait, ask her to sec- secretly get her to record some Charles impressions. That'd be great. <laughs> we cannot move on from Angela oh. without talking about the poem. Um, yeah. Angela recorded this beautiful spoken word poem <clears throat> about uh, being a Michael fan in the wake of his death. 
What was it called, Ange? It was called Legacy. Legacy. And it began a community divided once so strong. And um, it went up on YouTube a couple of years ago and it got circulated widely in the fan community. And it was just so clever and such a great piece of work. It was beautiful. I think I think we replayed it on the show as well at some point. We did. I think season one. Yeah. I think it was uh, was that the one. was it for the June twenty fifth or for his birthday? One of those two shows we did play that actually. It was really good. How Thank did that come much. about? How did that come about, Ange? I actually I I mean I, I songwrite a lot and I, I do write poetry. Um when Michael died, I wrote a really long sort of raps poem type thing and I wanted to put that at Forest Lawn um, but by the time we got round to going I think there was you know there was just so much that had happened that I I wanted to update it so I just kind of that's where it stemmed from it was a lot angrier in the originally um, <laughs> it, it really was it, you know at the beginning it kind of it focused on I, I just remember feeling really angry that, you know, he went through the trial in 2005 and everyone sort of shunned him. And then when he passed away, I just remember going into like, you know, record stores or whatever, and you couldn't find a Michael Jackson album. They were just all sold out. And, uh, you know, that, that hypocrisy really got to me. I didn't, I didn't like that. So that's where it started anyway. Very cool.
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Let's talk to Mr. Thompson about his fan story. Because let's get this straight. Charles, you are a fan. You love Michael Jackson. So yeah. we, we get to hear your opinions, your strong opinions, and sometimes completely opposite to a lot of other people's opinions very often, which we value and we love hearing. That's why you're a co-host. Um, but you do love Michael Jackson. You're not a troll or a hater or paid <laughs> by someone and these ridiculous bullshit stories. So we want to know about you being a fan and your fan story and what you love, please. And I'll just jump in before you start, Charles. Sorry, sorry. You just hold on a sec. I I feel like in a way we owe you or I feel like I owe you a little bit of an apology in some way because you, you come on the MJ cast a lot, but the thing is you're mainly here when we're talking about really complex legal situations, which also happen to be negative. So you're, you're sort of always in the zone, I guess, on our show of talking about these complex negative situations. We've never really given you the platform or chance to talk about why you are a big Michael Jackson fan. And just for our audience's information as well, every year we do a poll and we we uh, last year we decided to ask our audience um, who they love on the MJ cast the most in terms of our special guests. And without a doubt, Charles was by far the most loved guest that we we we've had on the show like people just voted for him in troves so that's we, that's we, another- we, we don't mean special guests like you know up with Tars jackson stuff we mean like co-host guests yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the most popular co-host by far by far by a very 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 long margin so i feel a little bit bad that we haven't given you the chance charles to talk about your fan story and i'm really excited to hear why you're a massive mj fan well i it's not really true that um, I haven't told my fan story in the sense that I, I covered some of it when um, I was on the show with Sam Habib. I you forget did. which episode number that was. Um, it was we'll a really it. long episode. Our longest like episode ever. Long. It was insane. Yeah. <laughs> five and a half hours long. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a very long recording and I don't really remember it, but... So, I mean, just to rehash some of what I'm sure I said on that show, I became a fan when I was about seven years old and I went to a friend's house for dinner after school and he had on VHS the um, History Volume 1 video, the the music video, you know, the, the pick of the music videos from Off the Wall up to Dangerous. And um, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Michael Jackson and he put these videos on and I was just completely and utterly transfixed. And I described him in one of the previous episodes as uh, it was like a superhero. As a kid, I, I, lo- I was not much into pop music and stuff as a kid, but I was into Superman and that kind of stuff. And Michael kind of bridged a gap between pop culture and uh, sort of a, my childhood adoration of like Batman and Superman in the sense that he seemed kind of superhuman in the way that he moved in the way that he shapeshifted in the way that in his music videos, he was a magical figure, 
you know, in one in one video he'd be turning into a panther. In the next video, he would disappear into the floor and then come back as like an Egyptian pharaoh. And then in another video, he would uh, become a zombie or a werewolf or he would be, in another video, a gangster, you know. And, and the, there was magic in the way that he moved. And I mentioned this in one of the, I think in the Pirates in Neverland, episode with Ryan Michaels, I remember watching, I think probably the most euphoric video was The Way You Make Me Feel. Just the, it's a, it's a euphoric song, you know, it's, it's a really upbeat song that builds to a huge climax. And, um, but I remember the video, he was an incredibly aspirational figure. He looked fantastic. And um, he, there's a moment in the video where he's standing still almost, but his feet move. It's like he's dancing with just his feet, kind of James Brown style. And I remember watching that and just thinking he was like magic. It was like different parts of his body could move independently of all the rest of it. So it was very much an audio visual fascination that I had with Michael as a young kid. And either that year or the next year, for Christmas, I got my first CD player, and with the CD player came um, the History CD, which actually, after I'd got into Michael Jackson, I had I had a, a Walkman, uh, an old cassette Walkman, and I would go to the library, the local library, and I would uh, rent out the History on cassette, History cassette album, like every three weeks when uh, the lease was up, I'd take it back to the library and then check it back out again. <laughs> and I'd just play it on a loop on the Walkman as I walked around the house and stuff. And uh, when I got my CD player, it came with a history double CD. Then that year for my birthday, which must have been 1997, uh, was, I turned nine in 1997. And with my birthday money, I went to the local record store and I bought the Blood on the Dance Floor album and I bought the History Volume 2 VHS with the blue cover with the gold statue on it, uh, which has the MTV Awards and all that stuff on it. Um, great, great DVD. It was not a DVD, it was a VHS. Oh, yeah, I had, yeah, <laughs> I had VHS as well, actually. And that summer, I uh, woke up one morning for school and looked at my watch and I had really badly overslept. And then uh, I got out of bed and I sort of peeked around my parents' bedroom door and they also had overslept. And um, I said to them, why didn't you wake me up for school today? I'm going to get in trouble. And they said, oh, you've got a choice today. You can either go to school or we can go and see Michael Jackson. And I was like in such shock that I just went, oh, uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was worried that if I missed school, I was going to get in trouble. So uh, my parents had secretly bought tickets to go to the history tour at Wembley. And uh, we went that afternoon up to Wembley and queued for a couple of hours and got in and uh, watched the show. And I really have very few memories of the show. I remember Michael jumping out 
from behind the drum kit and shooting down the curtain uh, for Smooth Criminal and then dancing in silhouette. I remember the history bit at the end when all the fireworks went off. I remember the Jackson 5 set because the lady in front of me jumped out of her seat and started dancing and I couldn't see anything. Uh, <laughs> I remember blood on the dance floor. But that's really all I remember, to be honest. I was nine years old and it's gone. It's erased from the memory. Yeah, so then Michael kind of became inactive for a few years um, and I didn't have the internet. I was one of the last people I knew my age to get the internet in that house. I finally got the internet in late 2001, probably not late, probably about mid-2001. Um, so just in time for Invincible to come out, uh, the day Invincible came out, I went down to the store and bought it at like 9 a.m. when the doors opened. I was expecting lots of people to be there doing the same thing, and they weren't. It was just me. You know, I was I was a, a crazy fan at the time, so I just he could have released a, you know, a CD of nursery rhymes, and I would have thought it was fantastic. Anyway, so I loved Thriller. <laughs> I loved Thriller. I loved Invincible at the time, and I became active in the fan community around that period probably late 2001 early 2002 certainly i was an active member of the community by the time he was protesting sony at which time i was about 14 years old i was writing for a website there used to be a uh, a website called mjimm.com michael jackson international man of music.com it was um run by a Indian guy who I'm sure his name was Raul Johari I think I hope so I hope I've not got that wrong but um, I would kind of write articles and stuff for them uh, became a member of the KOP board and I remember that you know then we started getting into sort of bad territory we got into Martin Bashir era we got into the um, the trial, etc. Yeah. Um, Which we'll get, we'll, we'll get yeah. to that in in a little bit because I want to sort of get into those mid two thousand years with you, where you became a really important sort of prominent figure in the fan community um, from those years, I should say. But first of all, talk talk to us about what things you love most about Michael Jackson. Like what when you became a fan, obviously you said you were a really big fan of the history album, etc. But um, in retrospect now, like I know you're a big fan of like 60s, 70s music, funk music. Are you? Do you gravitate more towards Motown Michael and the Jacksons Michael or do you prefer his solo stuff? What do you go to and listen to a lot? It really depends on the context. If I am looking to listen to something for fun, then I certainly would gravitate towards the Jacksons and the early solo material. But if the question was, what do I think is Michael's most artistically brilliant album, then my answer will always immediately be history. You know, history, in my opinion, is the best album he ever recorded, but I would not put it on a party. So different things for different times you know i was trying to think of a list of my favorite songs of michael's and i came up with about seven or 
So it's really difficult to choose. But they span all different eras, I realized when I was looking at them. With the, um, the earliest on my kind of list of my favorite Michael Jackson songs is With a Child's Heart. I can just listen to that all day long. It's just good, such a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah, that is um, beautiful. And then the most, the newest on my list of uh, favorites is They Don't Care About Us. If ever I was pushed to pick my favorite Michael Jackson song, I would probably choose They Don't Care About Us because it's um, it was just such a bold statement for him to make. And it kind of, um, you know, I work as a journalist, as people know, and my job really is to hold power to account. And it's kind of like an anthem. I just love it. I just think it's kind of, um, that should be everybody's attitude. You know, <laughs> I just kind of think um, we all should be a, a little bit more in the vein of they don't care about us because, that you know, you look at what's going on in the world today various things you just think if more people would speak out and stand up then we might not be in this uh situation and it was especially bold for him given what just happened to him at that point in time to come back so aggressively to not be meek you know because the media wanted him to be meek and society wanted him to be meek i remember when i was a fan right as a kid around the time michael had his first son who he started calling Prince, although his name is Michael. But um, he, I remember listening to the radio on the day that it became known that Michael's son was called Prince. They were talking about it on the on the radio. This sort of a, you know, the chat in between songs, and the DJ was saying, because people call him the King of Pop. He actually thinks he's royalty now. He actually thinks he's royalty. I mean, this man is so deluded that he thinks that because people call him the king of pop, that means his son's a prince. And um, that was the prevailing attitude societally towards Michael Jackson at the time. And even as a kid, I would have been, again, about eight, nine years old at this time. I have found it very distasteful. And the word... I would use to sum up people's attitude to Michael Jackson at that time is that it was almost like they considered him uppity. It was like he did not know his place. That was the attitude. He did not know his place. And um, it was grotesque, you know, especially when you, you know, you get older and you learn what the history of that name was in the Jackson family that Michael's ancestors on Catherine's side were slaves and they were called Prince by their owners as a joke. Ha ha ha. He's a slave and he's called Prince a bit like how slave owners used to call their slaves. Uh, they, they given the surname white as a joke or the surname Lynch or the surname Blackburn. It was a it was a disgusting joke. 
at the expense of, uh, of Michael's ancestors. His owners thought it was funny because he was a slave to call him Prince. But Michael's family through the ages found dignity in the name and reclaimed it and um, adopted it and perpetuated it. And so Michael started calling his son Prince, not because he thought he was a king and he was deluded and he thought that he was royalty, but in tribute to his ancestors who were slaves. But the attitude, the prevailing attitude towards Michael at that time was that he was uppity. This was a man that did not know his place. And instead of trying to court public opinion, and instead of trying to ingratiate himself with these racists and imbeciles, he came back with a statement which was so bold and so aggressive and so assertive. It's just, for me, it's the most meaningful song of his career. And whenever somebody asks me, what is your favorite Michael Jackson song? My immediate instinct is always to select, they don't care about us. What is your favorite tour? Oh boy. Well, it's hard to say because there's a few tours that there is no consistently good footage of. I mean, even the Victory Tour, to be honest, there's no really good footage of the Victory Tour. But from the the footage that I've seen in the Off the Wall documentary that came out last year, I suspect that if I could get hold of a full, good quality Triumph concert, it would probably be the Triumph Tour. Because Michael looked so joyous in that footage and so raw and like he really was just completely in the moment. And also it was a great band with a a horn section. And I felt that Michael's latter tours really could have benefited from a horn section rather than somebody playing all the, all that stuff on synth, particularly the bad, you know, a lot of people say Michael's greatest tour is the bad tour. Michael was great on the bad tour, but the synth, all over some of those live arrangements just drives me around the bend. It's way too screechy and loud, and I don't like it. So that kind of mars the whole thing for me. I think as a dancer, his greatest tour was Victory. Uh, He certainly moved a lot faster on the Victory tour than he did on the Bad tour. Uh, There's footage from the Victory tour where he looks like a streak of lightning, shooting across the stage like it's unbelievable the speed with which he um moves and the precision and also the greatest dance move of his entire career in my opinion is that circular moonwalk that he did on the victory tour which he unfathomably retired straight after that tour and he replaced it with that kind of more laborious sort of pushing himself around in a circle thing, which was nowhere near as good. 
that circular on the spot moonwalk was just phenomenal. My friend had never seen it. I've got a friend called James who um, is a, is a Michael fan, but not in in the sense that we are. He's not a member of the fan community or anything, and he'd never seen it. And I showed it to him just a few months ago, and he was completely blown away. It was like, holy shit, why did he stop doing that move? It's just unbelievable. I suspect that if I was able to get hold of some good quality footage, and maybe one day, touch wood, the estate will come to its senses and release it, but I shan't bank on it. Triumph would probably be my favorite tour because it is in keeping with the musical tradition that I love the most, which is kind of funky live music with a, a horn section. But of... Of the tours that we have good footage of, which is basically bad, dangerous history, is uh, bad by a country mile. Cool. And what is your, if you can list one or two, what are your favourite MJ performances that you just love to watch that just fill you with happiness? Hmm. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, I think... On the bad tour, there were some fantastic vocal performances. I think, like on the on the bad Wembley DVD, he does all that vocal riffing between "I'll Be There" and "Rock With You," and that just makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. That's incredible. Um, on the bad tour, I think "Working Day and Night" was phenomenal. And also Shake Your Body was fantastic. I'm trying to think of a standalone performance that I love, but I can't really think of any, which is kind of a shame. But he tended to mime almost all of his standalone performances, and, you know, I just can't abide lip-sync performances. So it would have to be sort of um, performances pulled out of concerts, so and and also there were some great performances of um, tracks like "Lovely One" on the Bad Tour. Yeah. What about videos, film clips, videos, that kind of thing? What do you love? His best videos to me are "Thriller," "Smooth Criminal," and "Remember the Time." Those would have to be my top three. And I also love the uh, the prison version of They Don't Care About Us uh, for reasons I outlined already. I think um, Thriller, you just will never beat Thriller. Nobody will ever beat Thriller. It is, it's like trying to beat The Godfather or trying to beat Citizen Kane. You can't do it. It is the original, the greatest. It will never be rivaled. Smooth Criminal is just a fantastic piece of work. I still don't really understand the bit in the middle, to be honest, with the cat on the piano and all that malarkey but i don't know what that was meant to be but the the video as a whole is fantastic choreography is fantastic the concept is amazing and remember the time as well as again what an incredible concept and also a very political uh move by him because michael was trying to get this uh he was trying to get a, a movie off the ground about the history of egypt where it would actually have a black cast. Of course, the biggest Egyptian film ever, Cleopatra. Cleopatra is played by a white woman, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. So Michael was trying desperately to get this African version of the Egypt story off the ground, and nobody would make it. And so he decided to do it himself, and he went out and hired 
it's John Singleton, I think, right, to make his own short film about Egypt with an all-black cast, and that was a, a quite a defiant political thing for him to do. And on top of that, it is just a fantastic video, again, fantastically choreographed. Kiss is not fantastically choreographed, I have to say. We probably could have done without that. It's got to go down in history as one of the most awkward screen kisses of all time. But, you know, the the video as a whole is fantastic and great humour as well at the beginning with the whole Eddie Murphy section. Where do you think Michael does fit into history? You said before you're sort of referencing... Uh, how he was viewed, where do you think he does fit in historically? Yeah, I mean, he, um, I, I love Michael, and uh, he was a phenomenal artist and a pioneer in certain respects, but uh, I don't like to over-egg, you know, like as a lot of fans, like, they want to tell you that everything he ever did was like a, brand new and invented and he was the the originator michael in musically i can't think of anything michael innovated he raised the bar for quality absolutely raised the bar but did he do anything that nobody had ever done before not that i can think of but his real where he really pioneered was the music video and marketing you know this man was a, a genius marketer up to a point before he kind of lost the thread of it. But in the, in terms of the music video, his, his position in history is cemented. Nobody can take that away from him. He is the originator. He is the pioneer. He set the standard. He changed the whole game. That is undoubtedly a place in history secured. As a live performer, he raised the bar totally. Uh, his place in history as a live performer is secured. I worry for his place in history as a musician, particularly with the estate acting and the way that it does, basically cheapening his brand and um, perpetuating the idea that he was just a silly pop star with a hat and a glove and some white socks and that was it. They seem completely uninterested in promoting anything he did post-1988. They seem convinced that everything he did post-1988 was of no value, that it should not be celebrated, that it should not be, uh, people should not be reminded of it. I worry in that respect. It seems like the estate is pandering to this stupid, pervasive idea, which has been around for decades now, that Michael Jackson was good up to the end of the 80s and it was only because of Quincy. That's that's kind of the attitude that the media peddled for many years. And it's the attitude, unfortunately, that his own estate currently peddles. They don't celebrate the dangerous anniversaries. They don't celebrate the history anniversaries. We really need as fans, I think, to fight for more recognition for Michael's more artistically challenging and creative and uh, courageous output. You know, he took risks there with the Dangerous and the History albums, and those risks are not being rewarded. Uh, they're being downplayed and uh, removed from the history books. So we must fight. As fans, we must fight to preserve Michael's musical legacy 
and for his position in history as a great artist. He didn't invent anything, I don't believe, but nonetheless, he's one of the greatest of all time. And um, we must not let his legacy be diminished in the way that it is being currently. Very well said, Charles. Charlie, you sometimes in the fan community get a bit of a bad rap where people do sort of um, dwell or talk about the fact that you do sort of uh, – I'll just say it straight out. Some people do say you're a bit of a negative bloke. (laughs) But in my opinion, like having known you now for quite a few years – you do like to discuss topics that many people would consider negative topics to look into and talk about. But I don't find that negative. I find your willingness to challenge bullcrap that goes on in the fan community and in, in the, in Michael's world, a positive thing. So what do what are your thoughts around how people might perceive you in that way? Well, there are fans who um, take that position well in a well-meaning way and there are fans who take that position for their own motives. So the, the fans that do it in a well-meaning way, there are, there are fans out there that think we must uphold Michael's legacy, we must keep everything positive all the time. And so their belief is that by expressing any negative opinion whatsoever, you are in some way demeaning Michael or compromising his legacy or his reputation, which is, you know, that's that's their opinion and whatever. But these are the kind of people who insist that it doesn't matter if three of the songs on the Michael album are fake. Uh, what matters is that the album goes to number one. So don't dwell on the fact that the songs are fake Just go out and buy your five copies like a good fan and let's get it to number one. That's the attitude of some fans. I don't subscribe to that attitude. Then you have other fans who uh, choose to uh, attack me for what I would call political reasons. For instance, supporters of the Casio track, supporters of the estate who don't like people that speak out against the Casio tracks don't like people that speak out against the estate. My, you know, my own opinion is if you're a parent and you have a child, for instance, I'm not saying Michael is a child, but I'm, I'm demonstrating like a familial relationship. Let's not say a child, right? Forget that. Let's say you have a brother, okay, who's two years younger than you or two years older than you and you love your brother with all your heart and you want nothing more than for your brother to succeed and to do well in life, but your brother keeps making bad decisions, do you, every time your brother makes a bad decision, pat him on the back and say, that was a fantastic decision, more of that, you know, keep going down that road? Or if you really care about and love your brother, do you sit them down and say to them, I'm really worried about you. You need to stop doing what you're doing and try and turn it around. What's the more responsible thing to do? What's the more loving thing to do? If Michael is heading towards Armageddon, do the people that really love him, do they 
stand at the sideline and cheer him on? Or do they say, I'm not happy with this and I'm frightened? That's the way I look at it, right? So I care a lot about Michael's legacy now. When Michael was alive, I cared a lot about Michael. I cared about his reputation. I cared about his legacy and his career. I cared about his well-being. And whenever he would do things that I felt compromised any of those things, I felt the responsible thing to do, the moral thing to do, was to speak out. You can't, you know, if if somebody's doing something which is really bad, you don't stand at the sideline and cheer them on. You, you know, why would you do that? That's That's insanity. And it's not what Michael's own family did. Michael's own family were trying to stage interventions. They were trying to help. And the people who killed him were the people that were around him saying, yeah, great move, Michael. You know, oh, yeah, you know what, dangling the baby, fantastic, Michael. Yeah, that was brilliant. He didn't need people around him doing that. He needed people around him to set him straight. And um, I believe that if he had been surrounded by more people who told it as it was, then maybe he would still be here rather than having surrounded himself by people who just agreed with everything he did and said, yeah, good move. So to what, to what, to what extent do you think that we as a fan community as a whole let him down in his life? Like were we so blinded by wanting Michael to just be that great artist that he was in the 80s and 90s again? Are we so blinded by that that we ignored the obvious? I, I, I don't like to speak for the community as a whole. The, the community as a whole is so diverse and has so many factions. And by the way, I'm not saying that every time I criticise Michael, it was because I was frightened that he was going to die or something, right? You know, sometimes I just criticised what he was doing because I thought it was crap, okay? The history tour, I don't care what you think when I say this, I couldn't give a monkeys, right? History tour, pile of shit, total pile of shit, 95% lip synced. Anybody that wants to try and tell me that that's acceptable, I'm not interested. It was rubbish. Okay. And I'm not saying that because I'm frightened. Mike was going to die. I'm saying it because it was cack. It was a load of old crap. Right. So, you know, I just don't see any point in pretending, I see no point in pretending that something's good if it's bad, right? As a fan community, you do not gain traction or credibility by making stupid statements. If you want to point at a blue sky and tell everybody that it's green, then you can't expect to be taken seriously. As a fan community, if you want to hold up the history tour and say it's fantastic, you cannot expect to be taken seriously. If you want to point to Michael in the Living with Michael Jackson documentary and say, no, you're all wrong. Michael sounds perfectly sane and reasonable in this documentary. You cannot expect to be taken seriously. If you want to hold up Michael dangling a baby over a hotel balcony above a concrete pavement and say he didn't do anything wrong, you can't expect to be taken seriously. If you want to, if you want your defense of Michael Jackson to be taken seriously and to be viewed credibly, then you have to present that defense in a rational manner. You cannot defend the indefensible. You cannot point to a blue sky 
and insist that it's green. And that was what used to see. I used to get quite passionate and maybe even slightly aggressive sometimes in my criticism. I was not aggressive in my criticism. I was aggressive in my attempts to get other fans to look at things objectively and reasonably. It's, it was like being trapped in a nut house sometimes. Michael would go shopping. He'd have 10 plasters stuck all over his face and he'd have a tablecloth wrapped around his head and he would be criticised by the media and then you'd have fans saying, oh, the media is so ridiculous and unreasonable. No, if you go out in public with plasters stuck all over your face and a tablecloth wrapped around your head, you can't... The, you know, he's been in the business long enough now to know that this is not going to generate positive publicity for him. You have to, you can't defend the indefensible and you can't keep peddling this willful dishonesty. And sometimes I would get aggressive. Not, it wasn't that I was feeling aggressive with Michael. It was that I was feeling aggressive with, towards fans who I felt were liars, right? I cannot cope with fans who just want to talk shit all the time. If you want to pretend that there's nothing wrong with dangling a baby over a balcony, go and do it somewhere else. If you want to pretend that inviting kids into Michael's bedroom after 1993 was a good idea, I've, no, I've got no time for it. I've got no time for it whatsoever. I just feel that being a fan does not dictate that you have to go along with this kind of deluded drivel. Um, you have to, just because you're a fan, it doesn't mean you can't look at things through objective eyes. And that was what used to drive me nuts about the fan community I just felt like I was surrounded by people who were willfully dishonest. You know, people who would post a picture of Michael at the Virgin Megastore signing in 2001 and say, this is the sexiest Michael's ever looked. And you'd just be going, whose benefit are you writing that for? If you actually believe that, you belong in a nut house. But I know that you don't believe that. So what's the what are you doing? What's the point? So... I don't even remember the question you were. Oh, yeah, right. So I'll be responsible as a community, right? So, um, not responsible, but like, I'll, but could we have done more? Could we have done more? Yeah. Because I know at that I'm time, sure, I'm sure I, I look at more. Michael in a very, very different way now than what I did in 2008. And if I knew everything I knew now in 2008, I would have tried to do more, I think. Well, hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? We know so much stuff now that we didn't know at the time. In many cases, what we thought was true turned out to be the exact opposite, right? I remember the dogma in the fan community, and this is another thing that used to drive me nuts. When I joined, I'm going to go off on a tangent now, right? Let me write a note so that I come back to what, what we're talking about, right? So dogma. Okay, right. So I remember the uh, when I joined the fan community, I was about 13 when I joined the fan community online. And I was almost groomed by older fans peddling this absolute nonsense, right? Michael's not had any plastic surgery. It's all lupus. That kind of nonsense, right? 
So then as a 13-year-old kid, you go into school and there are kids there who are taking the piss out of Michael Jackson and they're taking the piss out of you because you're a Michael Jackson fan, which is what it was like in the noughties. If you, you know, back then it was not cool to be a Michael Jackson fan. And you quite confidently respond, no, Michael's not had loads of plastic surgery. It's all lupus. Well, that makes you look like an even bigger idiot, right? So you had this whole community which was modelled on this basis of taking children and teenagers and filling their brains with nonsense and then sending them out in the world to make tits of themselves. That about the fan community I hated. I thought it was dangerous. I thought it was exposing kids to bullying and harassment and all kinds of stuff. I thought it was completely and utterly irresponsible of these adult fans to be sending these kids out into the world to humiliate themselves. And that was one of the things I was railing against. That was just going back to the point I was making earlier about this kind of uh, mandatory self-delusion that you had to subscribe to within the fan community or else face retaliation. But in terms of, of what we what we thought was true and what turned out to be true were two very different things. Michael's family for decades were portrayed as the enemy. They were portrayed as criminals, thieves, leeches, liars, having no respect for him, seeing him as a cash cow. After Michael dies, we discover the only people really in Michael's life who are trying to save his life are his family. The only people trying to stage interventions and get him out of the situation that he was in are his family. Everything we've been told about his family is bullshit, right? Meanwhile, for years, right? So people would say he should bring back Frank DeLeo. He should bring back John Branker. That was the team that he had around him at the peak of his career. He should bring back the dream team. That would get him back on top. Now we know, for instance, John Branker uh, is not a trustworthy individual based on what's happened since Michael died. Uh, we now know a lot more about his attitudes towards John Branker before he died. We know that Frank DeLeo, for instance, was instrumental in the release of the Casio tracks. So... A lot of the stuff that fans thought they knew before Michael died has been turned on its head since he died. So it's difficult to say whether we as a fan community could have done more because the information that we had was in many cases topsy-turvy and incorrect. Michael would constantly poo-poo any suggestion that he had problems with painkillers for instance you know there were there were a, a few fans there was like a, a coterie of fans that were around michael a lot and those fans uh, many of whom were responsible for setting up the this is not it campaign after he died those fans knew of the problems that michael was facing and they did try to take action Nobody was listening. I'd like to talk to some of those fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, some of those fans, they, you know, I spoke to some of them at the time and they said that it, would, it was routine. 
if you were if a fan showed up and said oh did you see michael today and they said yeah they say oh how high was he right it, it was common knowledge among that coterie of fans that surrounded him that would camp outside his house and stuff they all knew what was going on and they did try to raise the alarm some of them contacted karen fay for instance with severe concerns about his weight loss uh, and his drug use in the final weeks of his life. So could could the fans have done more? I'm not sure that's the hypothesis I'm putting forward, right? I'm not saying the fans should have done more and they could have saved him. I'm saying regardless of whether you can save Michael's life, you are you as a fan community are responsible for his legacy particularly in the face of an estate which has no interest in that legacy the estate's interest is in minimizing and diminishing that legacy they've proved this time and time again through the projects that they have released and the projects that they have chosen not to release your responsibility as a fan community was and is to defend michael jackson in a credible way and to ensure that his legacy is secured. And you cannot do that if you insist on maintaining positions which are untenable and which mean that you are not credible. You cannot successfully and credibly defend Michael Jackson and perpetuate and uphold his legacy while you're insisting that the history tour is a good tour. You can't do it. You're not credible. You cannot credibly defend Michael Jackson and maintain and enhance his legacy while you're insisting that it was a great idea to let kids in his bedroom after 1993. Your position is untenable. So that is my, my, I've not spent my time as a fan rebelling against Michael by and large. I've spent my time rebelling against fan dogma, which I felt was detrimental to the fan community to the fan community's image and therefore to Michael's image. And so there are many fans out there who don't like the fact that I openly say the history tour is crap. They don't like the fact that I say Invincible is a crap album. I'm not interested, right? Those fans do not have credibility when they maintain the positions that they maintain. I'm out here trying to do my best to defend Michael and to maintain and enhance his legacy. And I know that I cannot do that effectively unless I do it from an objective position, which will be met sympathetically by those who are not dedicated diehard fans. Well said, Charles. Thank you very much. Let's cut now to a song break. We're going to listen to Michael Jackson's With a Child's Heart. HF and KUDO dub mix. Enjoy. Just kidding, Charles. Oh, we wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> Here you go. Go face the worries 
face of the day with a child's heart turn each problem into play no need to worry no Charles, what about Michael Jackson when you think of him makes you smile and makes you happy? 
what makes me smile and makes me happy? There's two things. Firstly, the old footage. I said earlier about how much I love the making of Thriller, right? Making of Thriller, Michael, this is Michael at the absolute zenith of his career, right? He he looks absolutely beautiful. He's aspirational. He's cool. He comes across as really happy and joyous and uh, fun and warm. And he's also an artistic peak, you know, and a, a commercial peak, of course, as well. I love looking back on that era uh, and seeing this man before he was crushed. He was completely crushed by thieves who surrounded him by bigots and uh, criminals. And there were so many factions out there who were trying to destroy this man. And they did destroy this man, really, to a large extent. And I love to look back at the footage of him before that happened. And I take some comfort in the fact that before it all went wrong, this man did have a really wonderful life and um, and he deserved that. And then the other thing that makes me happy as a fan is when I see Michael post-monstering after they crushed him or after they tried to crush him and I see him emerging, if not victorious, then at the least defiant. They don't care about us symbolizes that. I love to see Michael, despite everything, despite the prevailing attitude, despite the racism, despite the hatred and the extortion attempts and everything, I love to see him coming back and really sticking it to his detractors and... um, taking a stand and being incredibly defiant. And also one of my enduring and most cherished memories is the World Music Awards 2006. Because although the media did, to an extent, spoil that event, um, this was after the trial. This was after everybody said he was ruined after the media said he was the ex-king of pop, his career was destroyed, and he walked out onto that stage that night at Earl's Court Arena. And as I said in the World Music Awards special, I have never, ever, ever seen an artist in any venue receive such an emphatically positive, adoring reaction and I can think of no greater poke in the eye for his detractors and his cynics and his critics than to see him walk out on that stage and be hit by such a tidal wave of love and appreciation and although the media twisted it and uh, rewrote that night's events. I feel so 
grateful that I got to be there and see him. This is this is why this is why I feel so grateful because he there was a joy in him that night I felt and it was the last time that he seemed to me to have that joy in him. By the time he died, I feel like he was um, a shell. It was like the soul had been completely crushed. And um, it was great to see a flicker, of, just a flicker of the man from the making of Thriller VHS, just to see that smile spread across his face as he was met by thousands and thousands of screaming, adoring fans. It was the last, uh, it was the last time that Michael Jackson, to me, looked like Michael Jackson. So that's my final very positive memory. That's what makes me smile. Charles Thompson, how should Michael Jackson be remembered? Michael Jackson should be remembered as uh, a hero. He should be remembered as somebody who, even aside from all of his artistic achievements, which are many, and he should be remembered for those, of course, His story, for me, is equally deserving. I think um, I posted something on Facebook a few years ago about the trial. It was the anniversary, I think, of Vindication Day, the anniversary of the verdicts. And I saw a lot of people posting these very triumphant looking images and posts on social media about his acquittal. And um, I didn't post that. I posted a photograph of Michael being effectively carried out of the courtroom by two bodyguards. He looked like a corpse. His eyes were closed. His face was hanging, his mouth was hanging open. He looked sedated. His hair was a mess. I think he was wearing like pajama shirt or something under his jacket. It was not pajama day. It was a subsequent day when he showed up looking really, really bad. And um, I wrote underneath that picture that, you know, yeah, let's remember the victory but let's not forget the path to victory. Because the victory means nothing. The triumph means nothing 
or very little if you remove from the equation the struggle which preceded it. The peak is made that much greater when it's compared with the trough. He really almost died during that trial. It's a miracle that he did not die during that trial. The misery and the pain and the injustice that was inflicted upon this man was horrific. And um, just surviving that makes him a hero in my eyes. They did everything they could to completely destroy this man. The authorities, the government, the media, criminals, did everything they could to completely destroy this man. And he didn't let them, really. Well, he did. He did let, he did let them on June 25th, 2009. But um, he put up a fucking good fight. And I love him for it. I really love him for it. So he should be remembered as a hero. Thank you, Charlie. Angela, what about yourself? How do you think Michael should be remembered? Um, you know what? I think Charlie just completely nailed that. I mean, I, I couldn't put it into any better words. He was just thinking about that trial. I mean, what a fighter. I, I think Charlie nailed it for me. I'll have to co-sign on that. Well, there we go. <laughs> Thank you for your thoughts on all of those things. Um, very deep thoughts. And I appreciate you guys for, for sharing your stories and uh, for yeah, sharing your thoughts on the fan community and how it is now and how we should be approaching Michael and thinking about Michael. Uh, complex topics, but ones that I think we should discuss for sure. It was so good hearing like the, your favorite stuff too, Charles. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Love that. You've made me want to go and watch um, that triumph. off the wall doco again just to see the triumph footage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me too. Me too. Cool. Well, so, we are going to probably skip our finds of the week this week, listeners. Uh, we do have them sitting here ready to go, but this has been a pretty long, long show so far. So I think we'll keep those for our next episode. They're pretty good ones. Mine's pretty funny. I can't wait to share it with you. Mine's pretty good too. It's also in the bag for coming up in another episode. So what yep. we're going to do now is some quick thank yous and farewell. So wanted to say thank you to social media people, Susie Figgy, Serena Lorenz B. Happy birthday on this date that we're recording. It is the Saturday, the 5th of August, so happy birthday to you. Uh, Jason Garcia, again, thank you so much for saving the MJ cast and, and helping produce such amazing episodes while Jamin was away. We really love and appreciate all that you did and, um, yeah, amazing shows were regularly broadcast and all because of you. So thank you so much. Also wanted to say thank you to Igor Moreto. Thanks for sending that awesome video from uh, the town in Brazil on Twitter. That was really cool of the great little MJ tribute. Uh, West Jaden, 
HeartRose33 and Sharon Kistner. And from the mailbag, I wanted to say thanks to all six of you that sent in questions for Q for an upcoming episode. I will be recording that this week. Rennie St. Louis and John Mulholland, thank you for your awesome emails in the last couple of weeks as well. Absolutely. And uh, people, if you want to find us online, we are um, at a lot of social media places. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as the MJCast. We're on Tumblr as um, themjcast.tumblr.com. You can reach us on email at themjcast at icloud.com. We love hearing from listeners there. And make sure you also subscribe to us uh, as a podcast as well. We're on iTunes. Just search the MJCast and lots of other places too like Stitcher and um, Google Play. That is it. Charlie and Angela, it's like 3.30 in the morning over there for you guys. Everyone out there listening, thank Charlie and Angela for staying up so late and for me getting up really early. Um, (laughs) We've (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. We so appreciate you sharing your stories and getting to know more about you both. It's been awesome. It's so cool to have like MJ fan friends actually know each other in real life, being able to share stories and stuff. Thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Pleasure. Anytime. It's been great. Jamin, welcome back. Thank you so much. Oh, that's all right. Uh, feels great to be back in the saddle, and I can't wait for our next recording. <laughs> it should be a little while. We've got, we've got a couple of things in the bag still. So. Well, we do, but if you think about the timeline here, we've got MJ's birthday coming up soon. So We do. Still working yeah. on that. We're working on that. <laughs> Cross fingers. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for listening and for rating and reviewing the show on your platform that you're listening to. And special thank you to those listeners that share the show and let more people see it and more fans find it and more fans enjoy it. So very special thank you to those that share the show from the page, share the show from your podcast app and retweet the show links so i very much appreciate that well we've played some good tracks for you guys this uh, this episode starting with bj griffin and jason brown the way you make me feel followed that up by michael jackson's groove of midnight an alternate sort of mix of it called midnight groove miles davis's cover of human nature and lastly michael jackson's with a child's heart Stripped mix. So we hope you enjoyed all of the tracks. And on Twitter, there will be the poll to pick your favorite song. Listeners, enjoy the fortnight ahead and keep Michaeling. Michael on.
So moving on, we've only got a few more news stories to cover before we get into the discussion topic today. The production company, King's Sons Productions, which is, of course, Prince Jackson's, produced a official music video for the track Hold On from Swedish singer Nano. I love Swedish pop music so much. Such high quality incredible standards and this is a terrific track which i love and it is available on itunes i've just had a quick look but the video is awesome talk about top top quality production like amazing loved it who else watched it (laughs) (laughs) that's fine you i'm so sorry i haven't seen it can i actually go really i i know i'm bad um can i go on mute bad 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 really 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 bad bad. (laughs) can i can i go on mute for a sec and you guys can talk about it and i'll be back in a sec well i think i'm gonna be talking to myself has anyone else (laughs) seen it yeah i've seen it okay Uh what did you think charlie (laughs) i'll leave you guys to this (laughs) i mean it was uh (laughs) It was difficult to form an opinion. I mean, it just to me was a bit like, um, you know, looking at a blank sheet of paper for about five minutes. You know, it was was a a competently made video that looked like it was shot on a professional camera and everything, but really uh, was of no interest to me. Great. I mean, you know, yeah, well done, Prince. It it doesn't look homemade. I'll say that. If you know Prince, well done. It looks very professional. It's very cinematic. Yeah, but I don't know who Nano is, and uh, I. I don't think you need to because. Further. Okay. Yeah. I think it's fantastic that he's saying something. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, good, well done, Prince. But um, yeah, not (laughs) not a fan of Nano. Angela, you're up. <laughs> Look, I think it's fantastic that he's doing something, and he's, you know, he's keeping busy. He's got, uh, is it Heal LA, his charity yes, that he's doing? <laughs> he's, well, you know what? I mean, he could quite, he yeah. could quite easily, he could just live off of his, yeah, live off of his family's money and do nothing, and off of his dad's money and do nothing. And yeah, I mean, you know, I'm watching it as we speak. I haven't watched it properly, but it looks pretty good. And I like the last one that he did. He did one for. Was it Obi? Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was yep. pretty good. Yeah. I, I think this one's better, actually. I like this one. It's much, for me, it's very cinematic. Like, it's a great story that he's telling, and it, and it matches a really powerful song. And the visuals certainly uh, match the power of the track, I think. Yeah. We thought it was a powerful track. I did. I think it's a really... I th- okay, so I believe okay. this track, and I know you're going to shit all over this as well. Add this to the list. I believe this track was the second runner-up for Sweden's entry for Eurovision, and it was uh, from the mm. is it Meliad Meliadio Festivalen or something? I know I've just butchered that pronunciation. A massive uh, event every year for music, and this was the runner-up. I actually think one? I. Um, there you go. Who was the winner? I can't remember. It was a it was some really uber handsome guy, 
uh, performing for Sweden at Eurovision and mm. it was a pop song, very pop, and that was fine. But I know the winner of Eurovision bagged pop stuff out. And said oh, yeah, I, he was quite good. That was the guy that did that sort of old-fashioned sounding love yes. song, right? And sang it so, in like a falsetto. Yeah, he was really good, but then he bagged out pop music yeah, in general. Yeah, I like, like him. Okay, well, I can I'm imagine totally you'd be great team. friends. Yeah. Give me the Swedish pop. I love Swedish pop. I don't know. This this kind of you know what this reminded me of. Do you have you heard? Please share, of, Charlie. Of Rag please share. There's a British singer called Rag and Bone Man. Have you heard of him? No. Okay, he's just come out in like the last year and a half and come like really massive. Um, this kind of looked like a Swedish guy trying to be the Swedish. Rag and Bone Man. That was uh, what it reminded me of. I don't, what did you think, Ange? Did, have you heard of Rag and Bone Man? Yeah. Are you talking about visually, like the way he looks? Because I haven't heard this. Oh, I mean, in terms of looks, they're just both, they're just two big white guys. Yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> they're just, yeah. I mean, yeah. I haven't heard the song, so I don't know, but. I'm watching the, the video on mute here. Oh, the production massively reminded me of um, Rag and Bone Man, I'm Only Human. So I'm back and I haven't really heard what... Oh, uh, finally. <laughs> I haven't God. heard what you guys have had to say because <laughs> I've been eating curry in the kitchen. But um, I did. Re- I do recall that great video that Prince did with um, Omar Batty and that was visually awesome. That was like... Incredible, like David Fincher style cinematography. So, if this is anything similar to that, I reckon Prince is an incredibly promising um, director and cinematographer. Q, is it like a similar? So you didn't watch it? No, I didn't watch you didn't it. Watch but this I'm, what, I thought I'm, you went to watch did, it. No, I went to eat curry. Or did he just produce it? <laughs> oh my god! Curry. Why is this even in the show notes? Why are we even <laughs> discussing this? Has anyone <laughs> seen it? <laughs> okay, listeners. Since this team are just taking the day off, listeners, <laughs> go to the show notes. Tell me, Q, because I care. No one else cares. Tell me yeah, what it. you thought. Tell <laughs> me what you guys think of the video <laughs> production. And if you want to talk Swedish pop, I am all up for that as well. Moving like on, Robin. Jamin. Wait, no, I want to ask Charles you. something. Charles, you know how, like, you hate remixes and digital sounding music and, And like... kittens, kittens and rainbows. (laughs) So, you know how you hate all that, right? Yeah. So, and and I'm guessing you love music that's made by real instruments and is really organic and and stuff. So, I'm probably right there, right? I I wouldn't say all music. I mean, I could pick up a guitar now. It wouldn't sound very good. No, 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 no. Okay, but... In general terms, you prefer music that's made by real instruments, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but what do you think about music like Prince that uses like heaps of synthesizers and stuff? Like even his 80s and 90s stuff uses like, he blends a lot of real instruments, but with synthesizers. So where do you draw the line? Do you like music that's at least has like Um, Stevie Wonder synthesizers and stuff? It really depends on the synthesizer. Um there's a lot of 80s synthesizers, which to me is like somebody like running a power saw in your ear. I just can't bear it. But 
I do tend with Prince. I listen almost exclusively to live bootlegs. His stuff always sounded better live. And they do say, or there's an old saying that if if your favorite artist doesn't sound better live than they do on the record, then they shouldn't be your favorite artist. Um, I, I I very rarely go back and listen to Prince albums like Dirty Mind, or um, you know. 1999 that kind of stuff if i'm going to listen to those tracks i tend to listen to the live versions particularly from the uh the noughties onwards where he would um be touring with a big horn section who would take over a lot of the synth lines a lot of those synth lines were designed to um emulate horns back before he was using horns and if you watch there's a, a gig it's the it's the concert actually where a lot of the tracks from the purple rain album came from um, a lot of the tracks that you hear on the Purple Rain album are actually live recordings, which have been polished in a studio. And they were recorded in, um, I think, in First Avenue, but they, they recorded a, a gig where he played the songs live for the first time. And uh, there's a performance on there of one of the songs, and he keeps shouting to the keyboardist, give me some horns. So the the synth lines generally were designed to or in many cases in Prince's stuff were designed to, so they were, they were like proxy horns, a proxy horn section. And the tracks, in my opinion, sound better when he plays them live with a horn section. I mean, yeah. 1999 DMSR, all that stuff sounds 10 times better when he, when he plays it on stage with a horn section. Okay. And my last question for you, we don't have to keep this in the show, but I really want an answer from it. So <clears throat> all of the like, Artists like Daft Punk and Chemical Brothers and um, even going as far back as the 70s, like with early electronica bands, like you basically just discount their value and like all the millions of people around the world that really love electronica music. You just, yeah, are they the, just all yeah, crazy all people? Shit. Yeah, totally. But why, I mean, why, why me, are they crazy? I mean, you, can't, and, you know, like say... You know, someone gives you some cauliflower, right? Do you have? Do you call it cauliflower? Yes, we yeah. have cauliflower. Yeah, right. Okay. So if you eat cauliflower, then some people love it and some people hate it. And if you say to somebody, why don't you like cauliflower? It's a really difficult question to answer because you put it in your mouth and you chew it and you go, that tastes horrible, right? To me, that is what I'm like with digital music. Yeah. It goes in my ear and I'm just like, oh my God, this is disgusting. Get it out straight away. I can't bear this. It's hideous. It's, uh, I, I can't tolerate it whatsoever. But that's your to opinion. Me. So why does that well, make the, everyone yeah. else wrong and crazy? Well, it's just a, it's a position that I can't comprehend because to me, the music goes in the ear and it's a natural physiological Jesus Christ, this is absolutely disgusting. How could anybody possibly listen to this? So it's the same way that I would be at a loss to understand why anybody would eat mud or <laughs> would, you know, poke themselves in the eye with a paintbrush or would kick themselves in the testicles or, you know, I, or whatever, would pay a prostitute to shit on their head, whatever. To me, oh <laughs> I cannot comprehend how anybody could enjoy listening to such a hideous noise. Thank you.
Alright. <laughs> the MJ Cast.